Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton, a show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education. This time around, I spoke to Ed Southall. As well as being a prolific blogger and tweeter, Ed is the PGCE Mathematics Tutor at the University of Huddersfield. Interestingly, he combines this role with teaching in a local secondary school two days a week, thus giving him something of a unique perspective on both maths teaching and training. In a wide-ranging interview, we covered the following things and more. How does Ed use concept mapping to plan sequences of lessons? What classic mistake does Ed think many teachers make in the plenary of their lessons? What so-called conventional wisdom does Ed hear about good lessons that he does not agree with? And fans of purple pens and lesson objectives, beware. Ed brilliantly describes a bad lesson he taught and what he learned from it. We talk about Ed's forthcoming book about uncovering the why behind mathematics. Why he's creating a safe maths environment so important and how does Ed facilitate that? What does Ed mean by a safe lesson and why should every teacher have one up their sleeve? If Ed could completely redesign teacher training, what would it include? How should differentiation best be done? What books, articles or blogs would Ed recommend maths teachers to read? And Ed gives a lovely answer to the question, what do you wish you'd known when you started teaching that you know now? Then there's Ed's Big Three and a podcast puzzle. Yes, it is once again another epic on the Mr. Barton Maths podcast. But you're used to that by now, right? In fact, I met a guy at the recent maths conference in Kettering who used the Bruno Ready episode to help him get through repaving his driveway. Well, he could probably get the whole street done by the time this one is through. Just before we dive in, two very quick updates from me. Firstly, our brand new, completely free Diagnostic Questions GCSE Scheme of Work is now live, thank God. Flip it out, that was my summer sorted. Once set up, we will automatically send your Year 10 and Year 11 students throughout the year and provide you with the kind of in-depth insights into their understanding that actually make a difference. Our questions have been written by AQA, Edexcel and OCR, all for the brand new GCSE Math Specification, so you know the quality will both be good and relevant. Head over to diagnosticquestions.com and sign in to find out more. Secondly, you may have noticed that MrBartonMaths.com has had a long overdue summer makeover. I'm particularly proud of my new topic section, where you can find full lessons, worksheets, videos, rich tasks, topic-specific diagnostic questions, interactive resources and probing questions on every single maths topic up to GCSE. Far more importantly than that, I also have a new Maths Jokes page, which contains award-winning maths movie pun titles such as Pie Hard, Fact of the Future, and Radius of the Lost Ark. That last one is probably the best thing I've ever come up with in my life. Head over to MrBartonMaths.com to check all the new stuff out. Anyway, without further ado, let me introduce Ed Southall. I really hope you enjoy this one. I know I did. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, Ed, so let's kick things off as ever with the math speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Uh, I would say my favourite number is 
2,520. Oh, jeez. Go on. <laughs> Go on. Like, I've got a little bee in my bonnet about favourite numbers, because I always ask my trainees on their first day, you know, what's your favourite number? And they always come up with things like three and four <laughs> and seven, um, related to houses and all that kind of thing. Um, but I think, that, I think as mathematicians, we should have better numbers. So 2,520 is... Um, my favourite because it is the lowest common multiple of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. Oh, nice! Fact. Which I think is pretty cool. Oh, I'll give you that. <laughs> yeah, that might be the best one yet. That I'm very happy with that, Ed. Nice. Um, and question number two, then: What was your favourite topic in maths when you were a student? Um, well, it, that's a tough one as well, just to be awkward. Um, I didn't really like maths when I was at school. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um. Uh, I was pretty good at it, but I just, I didn't really get it. I just did what everyone said. Um, and yeah, maybe algebra. I quite like algebra. Um, as an adult, I think geometry is probably my favourite, but um, yeah. <laughs> I don't if know. we just, just dig a little bit into that then, when, what, can you pin it down why you didn't like uh, maths? Did you like other subjects more than maths? What was it that kind of turned you off it? Yeah, I liked creative subjects. Um, and I didn't see maths as a creative subject when I was a child. Um, I do now, um, but I just thought it was quite limiting. I thought my lessons were pretty dull. Um, the teachers were quite kind of just, uh, you know, textbook lessons all the way through, and I, nothing was inspiring about the way I was taught it, sadly. Jeez, and when did it change for you? When did your relationship with maths change, would you say? <laughs> not, not until that recently, actually. Um, I, I, I went to university and studied maths, um, and I still wasn't enjoying it that much. Are you serious? So was, even at that even yeah, at yeah. age 18, 19, still not grabbed yeah, it. How, how come I you was, did a I, d- degree in it? Uh, well, I wanted to do a degree in computing, but I had to do dual honours, so I did both. Ah, right, okay. Um, and I went on to be a teacher of computing, um, but because I had all this maths in the background, I ended up teaching both. Um, and it was only really when I... Um, took on roles of responsibility within maths rather than computing that I started thinking right I need to actually look at this again and uh, figure out a way to really enjoy it Um, because I didn't want to teach something that the way I was taught it Um, so I just kind of started researching stuff and and just digging a bit deeper about why you know why everything works and and all that kind of thing and I just found that actually it makes loads of sense Um, and that made me enjoy it funnily enough (laughs) I think I think the confusion was just that because it didn't make sense to me and I was just kind of following all these random steps that didn't seem to be connected in any way, uh, I didn't like it. Well, that, that's fascinating, because that, I'm always i always very open with my kids uh, when I teach them. And I always say, look, I, I'll be honest with you, I'm an absolute nerd. I have loved maths from, from day one. It's always been my favourite subject. And I see it as kind of my yeah. job to not get kids liking it as much as I do, because the, the world would be a scary place if, if that was the case. <laughs> but, but just trying to get turn them on to it a little bit. But do you approach it from a different perspective? Do you Are you open and honest with your kids and say, look, when I was your age, I absolutely detested the subject, but I'm going to try my best um, to make you like it? Yeah, sort of. One of the opening lines I always give my any new class I've got that isn't a year seven or eight class, um, I'll just stand in front of them, introduce myself, and one of the first things I'll say is, right, put your hand up if you hate maths. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and funnily enough, a lot, a lot of proud hands go up. Yes. Um, 
not with every class, but with quite a few, particularly in year ten, if it's if it's not like your top set or whatever. Yes. Um, and then I'll, I'll quite happily just spend sort of the first ten minutes of the lesson just discussing that and trying to get to the bottom of it. And almost inevitably, it's just because they can't do it, yes. or it doesn't make sense. Um, and the two kind of go hand in hand usually, anyway. Um, and and I kind of I draw similarities with you know say art. If you're good at art, you'll enjoy it. If you go to every art lesson and everyone around you is doing brilliant paintings and you're just sat there scribbling, you don't enjoy it. Um, and once they kind of connect that the reason that they're not enjoying the subject is because they don't like it, um, because they can't do it, um, then we can start moving forward, really, and, and, and we kind of make a pact about, um, you know, if, if, they, if they're willing to try, um, I'm pretty confident that I can convince them that it's straightforward and uh, enjoyable. Nice. Flipping it. Well, that's something we'll definitely dig into your approach to, to lessons later on in the interview. Well, final question on this speed dating one, Ed. Uh, what job would you like to do if you weren't involved in education? Uh, if I wasn't in education at all, um, probably programming, some kind of programmer. It's very. I, I find coding very similar to maths. Um, not just because it's got maths within it, but people often talk about like how maths is beautiful and everyone you know who's not quite converted thinks that's hilarious but <laughs> i think there's you know there's i can see that how some equations and, and things when you when you boil them down to the to their core essence they're quite you know appealing i think the same can be said about programming you can look at code and you can just kind of think oh that's that's ugly code and then you can look at other code and think actually that's really really well formed and uh, functional and and just really efficient and there's a kind of weird aesthetic to that as well and do you get to do much coding now uh not so much no i do little bits and bobs but nothing nothing significant um there was a website actually that i used to go to about three years ago that was just called a coding contest or something nice. and this guy would just put up all these little contests but they were all maths things that he would put up like find the integer that does blah 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 um, but he expect you know, you all, everyone had to do it through programming, and he'd post all the code that everybody put up because everyone could choose different languages, and that that was that was pretty fun for me. Hey. Um, but yeah, I, I don't really do it that much. I'm too busy, really. Yeah, sure, <laughs> that's that's the problem, isn't it? Okay, well, that kind of segues nicely uh, onto my next question, which is, I wonder if you could just uh, give the listeners just a bit of an overview of your career to date, because I know. Um, uh, just talking to you just before we started recording, you, you kind of, you, you, well, next week that's coming up isn't your kind of traditional week in the life of a teacher. So if you just give us a bit of an overview from um, from your from your degree up to where you are sure. now, if that's all right. So finished my degree and uh, I wanted to I wanted to go into some kind of programming thing, but it was just after the the, the Millennium Bug thing. <laughs> Um, yeah, all that way back. Um, and, and the job market just kind of fell out of that, um, thing for, for programming. And, and, you know, people were just recruiting left, right, and center just leading up to the millennium. Um, and I just, I, I wasn't really very successful in getting any kind of decent outcomes for jobs. Um, I got interviews here and there, but nothing that, that, that really appealed to me. Um, and so, my mother's a teacher, and she just said, look, why don't you come into my school for a week and see what you think? Um, so I did. 
and I thought I, I thought I could do it. I quite I quite enjoyed it, but I mean, I'll be honest, I was a bit of a mercenary. There were so many <laughs> there were so many monetary incentives at that time to, <laughs> to become a maths teacher or a computing teacher. Um, that that's that was my primary reason for 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 going into the training. Um, so I, I trained. I was fine. That was that was easy. Uh, I found it quite easy actually. A lot of people found NQ uh, you know teacher training quite difficult. Mm. I didn't, and I quite like relaying that to um, trainees because um, often the messages are this is going to be the hardest yes. year of your life, and it doesn't have to be. Um, anyway. And I got a job as a computing teacher, um, and I did a little bit of maths on the side, a couple of lessons of maths a week, and that just kind of built up until I was about 50-50 after a year or two. But most of my positions of responsibility, like key stage three coordinator, headed department, that kind of thing, that was all the computing side up until um, about six years ago, five years ago. and then I left that school and became a maths and computing consultant abroad. Uh, it was just this, it's just this amazing job opportunity. I just got a little bit uh, bogged down with the idea of um, the traditional route in school careers. I think that was bothering me. So I, I looked for something different. I found this job and thought, there's no way I'm going to get that job. But you know, what, what's the worst that can happen if I apply for it? Um, and I got it, and so I shipped my family. I had a, a one-year-old son, um, and me, and my wife, and my son, we all went out to the Middle East uh, to do a kind of teacher training, but it was it was training existing qualified teachers on the job, like oh. retraining them, I guess. Oh, nice. Um, local teachers, you know, they they didn't speak much English, so we had to have interpreters. It was fascinating. It was absolutely brilliant. Um, and I did that for a few years, and then I came back to England and I was head of maths uh, and an assistant head for a couple of years um, and then this job came up that I'm doing now which again I just thought it looks amazing I can't I can't resist going for that again thought I probably wouldn't get it but did um, and so now my existing job is that I'm a, a teacher trainer um, but I'm also uh, a practitioner so I do go into schools as well and I teach kids uh, it used to be three days a week it's two days a week this year um, so I'm very much kind of doing the dual role of, of training people and, you know, teaching kids. So I think I think that, that works really really nicely. And the two days uh, a, two days a week at is that in the same school or is that <coughs> dif- different schools? Uh, it's a new school this year, um, but it, it's always been the same school throughout its school year. So so for the first two years it was at, um, uh, one of our partnership schools, and then this year it's another one of our partnership schools. So I'm kind of a bit like a renter teacher. <laughs> <laughs> but you have your do you have your own classes or is it shared classes yeah, yeah. Uh, well they have to be shared just yes. because i'm not there enough um and what's what's been really sort of surprising for me in a really good way uh this year is that i'm really having to re-establish myself um because it's a new school again and because i'm i'm a day less i found that particularly a bit tricky because it's hard to get any kind of routines, get all the, all the sort of things I'm training people to do, <laughs> it's hard to implement those because I'm not there enough yes. to do it. Yes. Um, so while it's been four or five weeks now, so I'm, I'm getting into the habits so of everything's getting pretty much as I want it to be, but it's definitely taken a lot longer this time around than any other school I've started in. 
And I wonder just just on that, Ed, when you when you have shared classes, um, are there examples of classes there that you'd share with different teachers, or do you always kind of share with the same teacher? If that makes sense. Uh, it's it's a tough it's a tough situation actually at the moment because there's a couple of part timers and it's a small school, um, so some classes have got two teachers, some have got more than two teachers. It's not ideal at all. Um, but I'm, I'm well aware that I'm kind of part of the problem in it um, because I'm only there a couple of days a week. I mean, the reason the reason I ask is that's like it's an increasingly common um, issue or, or kind of factor in in schools across the country. And I I find when I share classes, I'm an awkward one as well when I kind of just teach three days a week or four day, days a week or whatever. And it's it's completely different, right, than um, sharing a class compared to having your own class because the routines yep. and consistencies and stuff like that that you can establish uh, are very different when when you've got when you're sharing it with a different teacher and so on and i just wonder if you could just talk briefly about that how how do you find that sharing classes and how do you find kind of establishing your routines and your way of, of working with classes who's perhaps worked slightly differently for better or worse with other teachers yeah um i'll be it's not easy that's that's the first thing and i don't think there's an there's a an ideal answer that's that's going to tick every box for the kids but um what we try and do i mean first and foremost you've got to be in regular contact with the other teacher yes. um and, and i don't see the other teachers because they're working the days that i'm not working and and vice versa so it's very much an email thing um i do know them i've worked with a couple of them in in other schools as well just by coincidence um and yeah so we, we we split the units of work so we're not teaching the same thing ah nice um and we have separate books so just just to try and make it because otherwise the, the the problem is you know you go into a lesson and you start teaching and realize that they've already learned some of yes, that stuff yes. previously and that can cause a few issues um but obviously the downside is for the kids they're trying to learn two or three things at once rather than than just one thing yes. thoroughly across a five six lesson session or whatever um so yeah in terms of routines as i said uh, i think more than ever i've had to just keep the same routine really really obvious every single lesson so the first 10 minutes of my lessons with each group look pretty much identical every single time now whereas uh in previous roles i, I you know there's, there's been a general routine but i would mix it up a little bit um just for my own sanity really but because i just, I just don't have them often enough and i'm yes. very keen to set a routine um we just do the same thing over and over again for those first few minutes so they know it's me and you know i mean the kids never know which teacher they've got as well they turn up and they're like oh it's you today so, yeah well i tell you what, not ideal but it, no but well let's that's perfect time to, to delve into into this whole process of, of planning and routines and, and what your lessons actually look like ed so if you can just choose yeah. a topic any topic and just take us through the process of how you plan a lesson or a series of lessons from start to finish and i'm, I'm interested in what's the first thing you think about what resources you use where do you get your questions from do you physically write down anything to help you remember what you're going to do if you can just take us through that process in as much detail as you can sure um i think the first thing i do is is what i try and get on my trainees to do as well and that's just to think about where they're coming from and where they need to go to um for a unit um so say it's uh, i don't know plotting uh, linear graphs or whatever you think right what do they need in place to enable me to teach that topic 
um, for example, they need to be able to substitute um, algebraically. Um, they need to understand algebra. They need to know a bit about sequences, all those kinds of things that feed into um, the topic that you're teaching. And I, I, I do a thing sort of that I call concept mapping. I know I know a few people that do this kind of thing. Um, so I'll have the concept in the middle of a page, and on the left-hand side, I will draw up all of these kind of prerequisite skills um, that enable me to teach it well. Um, and once I've got all those mapped out, I then go to the other side and think, right, where do I want them to go with this topic? And I start listing all the different types of questions that I want them to be able to answer when I've finished teaching it. Um, so that that might take, I mean, it doesn't take me long now. I've done it loads of times. In fact, I've got existing versions of these things somewhere. Um, and it's, that's mostly done mentally in my head now, just because of you know, how long I've been teaching. But for trainees, I think it's really important that they that they work together and just churn that out with me there if possible so that I can sort of pitch in. Um, and just to check, Ed, sorry to interrupt, this is yeah. not, not for a single lesson, right? Is this like a... No, a no, this is a lessons. sequence of lessons. Got it. Yeah, Got it. so this, this, would be, this would be a topic rather yes. than a standalone. Got it. Um, I don't... Yeah, I'll come back to single lesson in a minute. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, so then we've got this kind of this map of where we want them to have started from and where we want them to get to. Um, and that just informs everything. So your starter, your first questions are going to be based on the left-hand side of your document. And you're going to say, right, those questions that I'm going to ask need to draw out whether they know the things I want them to know or not. And if they know them, brilliant. I know they're ready for my topic. And if they don't know them, then I'm going to have to adjust um, and it might be that they've just forgotten and it might be a really small adjustment and we just spend an extra 10 minutes on it and everything's fine. Uh, or it might be that I have to pretty much bin the lesson yeah. because there's no way they're going to be able to do any of the stuff I want to teach because something fundamental's not there. Yes. And I was assuming it was and it's not, um, which is really tricky um, for, for someone without that experience um, because, you know, you've got a whole lesson planned in front of you. You've got the resources ready. Um, but once you've taught a bit, you, you become very aware that that's kind of irrelevant. And <laughs> yes. no matter what you've got in front of you, if you know that it's not going to work, you, there's no point even trying. It's just going to get worse. Yes. Um, and, you know, there's things you can do to preempt that by asking some of those questions at the end of the unit before so that you've got a good idea of what, what they're going to be like before they're in front of you. Um, but, the, yeah, th so those will inform where they are and, and as I said if you need to adjust stuff you adjust stuff assuming everything's fine or you've adjusted and now it's fine uh, you then start thinking about teaching the actual topic um, and really my planning doesn't, doesn't go that much further than how am I going to explain it what resources do I need and then it's all about the questions I'm going to ask them and that is just to me the most fundamental part of, of how I'm going to approach a unit what questions am I going to ask? How am I going to draw out misconceptions? How am I going to draw out true understanding? How am I going to make the resources that they have to sit and do on their own interesting? And just to kind of rewind slightly, Ed, when you said um, that your, ten minute, your first 10 minutes of your lesson look pretty much the same at the moment, is that this kind of assessing this prerequisite, this baseline knowledge? Is that what you mean when you say this? No, no. So... 
I kind of I hate this idea of starter main pudding or whatever you call it. <laughs> <laughs> I have like two starters. So the first one has a very different purpose, and the first one is to just it's behavior management, it's right. settling, and it's routine. And that at the moment, and it's not always been this, but at the moment that is uh, times tables, rock stars, yes. or number bonds. Um, I made my own version of Time Stables Rockstars that is basically the number bonds version. Nice. Um, <laughs> and because I've got certain classes that just aren't, they're, they're not strong enough to, to do the times table stuff. They, you know, you need to go further back than that for some of them. And that to me is number bonds. Um, and so in terms of routine, I'll stand at the door as they come in. Um, I'll either hand them these things. I've printed them all out or they're on the desks ready for them if I've not been teaching the lesson before. And there's uh, Google stopwatches just on yep. the board, just this big zero, zero. Yep. <laughs> um, and, you know, they'll sit down and I'll say, right, off you go, three minutes. Press the start. And what that enables me to do is just get sorted. Yes. Um, so they've got three minutes. I, I make sure it's in silence or as, as close to silent as, as I'm happy with. Um and in that time, I'll do the register. I'll make sure that all my resources for the rest of the lesson are where I want them to be. If I need any kind of display stuff like PowerPoint, it's there. Smartboard stuff's up and running. Um, because I know you know you don't have time to do that stuff before the lesson if no. you're teaching back-to-back. And we're all teaching back-to-back. Um, so you'd, I just need that time to get myself sorted more than anything. And I need them to know that, you know, whatever's been happening before this lesson forget it now it's about my lesson you sit there you do this then we're ready to start learning and is it a, a same uh, same procedure with a key stage four class all of them all of them the only the only difference really is that um i make sure it's in silence if it's a a, a group that i find difficult behavior wise or if it's an afternoon lesson yes um and again that's just from experience my personal experience is afternoon lessons are harder so i want to make sure they're coming more lively i want to make sure they are absolutely settled and if the behavior is not great i don't want to get off on a bad start i want to make sure that they're doing exactly what i want but i'm prepared to give a bit of leeway for for classes that are easier to manage um so they can you know i don't mind if they're doing a little bit chatter as long as they're actually doing the work i've asked them to do and, and say you have a, a higher ability um, or higher achieving key stage four class, would they would they get yeah. the same kind of work at the start, or would you vary it up a bit? Uh, no, but I don't have any this year. All <laughs> ah, right. <laughs> uh, last year uh, I had a top set eleven, and no, I didn't do times tables with them. That would have been a bit patronising. Um, they had um, well towards the end, they would just have GCSE questions yes. up. Um, and towards the towards the start of the year, they just they'd have just really hard questions on the board that made them think, yes. and they were they were expected to do it collaboratively, um, and that was just this idea of trying to push, um, you know, resilience and and being able to apply skills that are very obvious in a textbook about how to use them to a question where it's not so obvious. Got it. Got it. But the underlining principle of this first 10 minutes, regardless of the class or the age of the ability, is essentially to get them in the right frame of mind for what's coming next and also give you time to prepare and do anything you need to do before essentially the, the yeah. next stage of the lesson takes place. Yeah. Got Definitely. it. All right. All right. So let's move on to then to the next phase of the lesson. So let's assume that you wanted to test out some of this prerequisite knowledge or this baseline knowledge. Yeah. How are you going about that? Uh, whiteboards mostly. Um, so I'll, I'll pre-prepare you know, four or five questions that unpick 
um, the stuff I'm expecting them to know. Um, so, for example, if I want to if I want to make sure sequences is secure, I'll get them to continue a sequence or something like that. Um, and it'll literally just be one question per thing. Yes. And if uh, it, and if I'm finding more than one or two again it wrong, then I'll I'll improvise and I'll make another question on that thing. Yes. And, and you know, just just start adapting a little bit. Sure. Um, and I won't put I won't put questions for every single prerequisite skill. Um, because some topics have got loads, um, but over the course of the unit, I probably will. So I'll pick out the ones that are imperative for that lesson, um, and then 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 you have to kind of make a decision. So let's say they understand most of them, but there's one or two things they weren't that strong on. If I think I can still get through the lesson without that one skill being secure, then I probably will. Right. But then I'll make sure the next lesson picks up that problem. Yes. So that I'm not having to do too much improvisation on the spot. Because I don't mind improvising, but it's not ideal. And, and certainly when I'm writing questions in my head, they tend to go a little bit awry. <laughs> and just to, just to play devil's advocate here, Ed, just to put you in the kind of worst situation possible, what are you doing if like half your kids clearly don't have a clue what's going on with this essential and the other half do. <laughs> Yeah, what, 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 are we, what are we doing there? Oh, God, nightmare situation, that. Um, I would probably sort of get the, the one half on task fairly quickly and just assume that they'll manage for the first, I don't know, 10, 15 yes. minutes. Um, and then I'd effectively split the class and try and reteach the other stuff to the other side. Yes. Um, and, yeah, the ones, who are, the ones who've picked it up are going to end up with a far more independent sort of lesson than I would anticipate yes. to teach. Um, but, you know, I don't see any other way around that because no. the other guys are the ones who need the input to get to where the other ones are already. Absolutely. Okay, but yeah, it's a, that is a tough situation. It is. Absolutely. It's a flipping nightmare. <laughs> it's an absolute flipping nightmare. And especially when especially when you've got to teach a new concept right because that's when it becomes very difficult to, to set the rest of the class off on kind of independent yeah. work when you actually need everyone together to do um yeah to, to to learn a learn a new concept or whatever and i guess that's where it's it's handy to have up your sleeve some more kind of purposeful practice of that kind of prerequisite yeah. that goes a bit deeper but yeah no that is that is a tricky situation all right well let's let's assume that we've we've assessed um the the kind of prerequisite knowledge and and you're happy with that and we're ready to move on to the next stage of the lesson so what what does that look like ed um Again, topic dependent, obviously, but I don't generally create any PowerPointy type things at all. Um, I just can't be bothered, frankly. I'm not invest. I'm not investing my time in that. I think it can be used much in much better ways. And there's tons of stuff out there already. Yes. If you want to, if you want to get a PowerPoint, don't sweat three hours over making one. Just find someone else's. Um, and I'm. I'm much bigger fan of, of just doing it kind of live. So I'll plan out my questions. That, that'll be in my planning. Yes. Um, but actually writing them up onto a board and solving them, um, that'll all be done on the spot rather than pressing next and next and next and new bit comes up and step two comes up and step <laughs> three. You know, I, I don't do that. Um, unless it's a topic that that's just far easier to do that. So, yes. for example, I don't know, constructions. If you want to try and improvise constructions, <laughs> you know, you might have your, your diagrams written down on a scrappy piece of paper, but actually putting those up on a board accurately is just not going to happen without a bit of prior planning. Um, so for things like that, I would 
make sure I've got something that kind of animates what I want to emphasize rather than me just scribbling randomly with a pen <laughs> and just to really kind of delve into this if you could you talk to us a little bit firstly about the type of questions you're asking and the other thing I'm interested in is what are the class doing when these questions are going up on the board are they answering on their own is it mini whiteboards and how are you kind of collecting in the responses to this uh, it's pretty much all whiteboards um just because I'm, I'm not convinced by any other method as, as having any distinct advantages over just having a whole class um, picture yes. instantly. Um, I've not seen any other way of doing that. Um, I, I suppose you could use iPads or something, but I mean, for God's sake, if you, <laughs> why bother? If you could just do it? It's just a simple pen and thing. What I would be in, interested in is bringing back the old slate because I get through a hell of a lot of blooming... Yeah. Marker pens. Yes. <laughs> Get the chalk and slate back. It'll be fine. Um, I'm sure that's how they were used anyway. <laughs> um, and when it comes to an actual part part of the lesson where you've got to do some some teaching or some explaining or modelling or, or whatever you want to call it, what what happens then, Ed? Can you just talk us through that that uh, kind of phase of the lesson? Yeah. Um, I'll build it up from from low level to fairly advanced and i'll move at a pace that i think suits the kids um so i'll ask some fundamental questions first to just make sure all the principles are kind of in place um so if it was li- I, I know we keep going back to linear graphs but i'd say what's the word linear mean first and foremost um what does it mean for something to be a linear graph um what what does a linear equation look like and just check that that the vocabulary is there if it's not there then that's my first teaching point yes um if it is there then i'll move a bit quicker and start picking up on other details um i wouldn't just jump straight in with here's an equation we've got a little grid of x and y um if x is one what's y if x is two what's y right now we can plot it right i'm not that's to me that's the most basic part of, of plotting a linear graph and that that's almost expected in a way that they can be able to do that. The, what I'm more interested in initially is that they know why they're doing it and, and what the bigger picture of it is. Right. Um, so we talk about um, you know, how many points do you need to plot a linear graph? Because we always tell them three, but it's not three, it's two. Yes. <laughs> but why do we? And then I'd say to them, well, why would I say three is better than two? Um, and try and draw out that you know, you can easily make an error with two points and you'd have no idea you'd made that error. Yes. Whereas with three points, you can spot that you've made an error. So whilst you can get away with just doing two points, you really want to do minimum three. And again... And I find it quite strange that the questions have always got like seven points. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, if I, if I can do three, I've got the answer. <laughs> and again, have the, have the kids opened the books at this stage? Are any note, formal notes being taken down? Are we still on the mini whiteboards? Um, probably not. Probably still whiteboards for the most part. Um, once they've got established a couple of ideas, then we'll start writing stuff down. Um, and the reason for that really is I don't want them to write stuff down until we've established what we're talking about right. as a class. Right. Um, so for example, if I said, right, write down what you think a linear equation is, and then told them it wasn't that, yes. then they've got a big fat error in the middle of their book. Yes. So I'd rather we, we we sort of thrash that out first on, on stuff that they can just erase and, and update 
and then when we're happy with what we're talking about then get it into the books is a kind of perfect answer got it and would that so are we would it be fair to say the kids are essentially using their books to kind of reflect on stuff that they've, they've understood and it's not and would that transfer through to if you were doing a kind of multi-step modeled solution would the kids only be copying that down at the very end of it once they've seen the whole picture as opposed to a kind of line by line approach if that makes sense um they don't i don't get them to copy a worked solution um I, i'll do a work solution and then i'll get them to do stuff with me another example right. and then that's the one that they'll copy into their books rather than because i think it's too passive if i just write if i just write a question and then show them the solution even if i'm talking to them if they just copy that down where you know where was their input yes um whereas if you then put another question up and say right now we're going to do this one together which effectively means you're going to do it i'm going to check it and correct it as a class yes. we'll do that process then they've at least participated i suppose yes okay so we've got we're at the stage of the lesson now where the kids maybe have got some stuff down in their book but you've also talked about the bigger picture of the, of the lesson and why they're doing it what what happens next yeah. ed what 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 kind of activities are we are we getting the kids to do um well the the finals the, the whiteboard kind of comes to an end at that point yes um once i'm confident that they can answer a question in the style of of what we're talking about then they'll start doing a bit of independent work uh, i'm not a big fan of like pairs or groups or anything right. like that i want it to be their work really we've okay. done the you know the group work was the bit with me yes um so then they'll have some kind of um either either i'll put questions on the board or they'll have a worksheet if i think there's there's quite a range of ability or, or diff- working at different paces yes. so that they've got more access to other things and i don't have to try and start flipping between slide one and slide two <laughs> or whatever it is um and those questions will be um th- they'll be the ones i'll have thought about the most um in terms of making sure that they're not just do the same thing do the same thing do the same thing do the yes. same thing um and there's nothing wrong with doing that as long as you're doing it with a purpose in mind um and you know beyond that you are going to give them other styles of question it might be in another lesson or yes. whatever it is but for me um they'll probably get maybe three questions that look like the one they were doing with me and then they'll have to start thinking a little bit more um and they've got choice as well so if if there's people who just totally get it straight away or they think they do um they wouldn't i don't ask that they all do a linear path through a, a worksheet um they can pick their path basically and could you could you give us some actual examples of of these more challenging questions that, that you'd ask perhaps for, i don't know for linear graphs or sequences or, or any topic you like yeah, so uh, I'm thinking off the top of my head now, but for linear graphs, I suppose the first few questions would just be, um, you know, uh, it's which one of these is a linear equation? Which one of these is going to produce a straight line? And just give them the equations. Yeah. Um, and then it would be something like, um, you know, here is uh, an equation. Can you find a, a set of three values for it? Yeah. Um, and then... Then it starts to get a bit more difficult. So it might be um, which line out of the following three matches this equation, yeah. um, or you know, spot the error. So someone's tried to do what they're doing, and there's a there's an example given, but there's a mistake in it, and they have to highlight where the mistake is. Yes. 
Um, and then moving on to just um, even more complex things. So you could give them, I don't know, you could give them a, a, a rectangle on a grid, on a coordinate grid, and say, right, I want you to create um, an equation that actually bisects this rectangle or something like that. Just something a bit more advanced that makes them think about other skills yes. and applying it to an unknown context. And are you finding uh, these questions yourself, Ed? Are you coming up with these yourself, or do you have like a favourite source where you go to to kind of get inspiration for this kind of stuff? Um, I mostly think them up myself, to be honest. Um, there are some good websites. Um, you know, if you want things like exam questions, obviously I would I would recommend you look through sort of past papers. It's yeah. very easy to find all the past papers now, and it's it's quite important that you get a couple of those in there, certainly throughout a unit. Um, not necessarily the first lesson, um, but I think yeah, most of them I just come up with myself, um, and I just use the same the same basic strategies um, for any topic. Um, things like reversing the question, yeah, so that you're kind of giving them the answer and trying to figure out what the question was, or deriving the information that would have been in the question, um, or just giving them a, a more open situation where they have to interpret it rather than interpreting it for them in the question. Um, as I said, spot the errors. Uh, you can get, if you've got really good kids, you can ask them to try and think of their own difficult question to ask someone else. But you have to know the class pretty well for that, because often they'll write a really hard question that they can't even <laughs> they can't themselves. Do <laughs> <laughs> like, well, how are you going to know it's right? <laughs> and um, and just, yeah. to, just to kind of pick up on, on the kids whilst they're doing this, so you, you say you prefer independent work as opposed to paired, paired and grouped. Um, if a child's stuck on a question, what are they? What would you expect them to do? Is it all right for them to ask the person next to them? Could they get up and move to a different part of the class to ask? Would they ask you? What, what are your kind of rules or and routines you have for when kids are stuck on stuff um i wouldn't let them out of their seats because i'm uh, i just don't like that (laughs) (laughs) i'm very i'm very wary of of potential causes for behavior issues and that's one of them for me so stay in your seat first and foremost um i don't mind them at all talking to each other if they're stuck on a question um but when i'm marking books i'm there's you know you've got to pick up on whether kids are just copying each other yes um because it's very easy to to do that and get away with it if 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 you're not sort of paying attention as a teacher um obviously i i don't expect them to put the hands up and i'll go to them what really annoys me more than anything and i and i instill this in the students so they're well aware of this is if you walk the room and you're talking to kids and you're marking the work and so on and then you get to this child and they just say, and you're like, well, why haven't you done any work yet? Oh, because I don't get it. Yeah, yes, the worst. And it's like, right, I know what this, I know this game. <laughs> <laughs> this game is do nothing because you either can't be bothered or genuinely don't understand it. Yes. But do nothing until you're found out. Yes. And then say, well, it's your fault because I don't get it and you haven't <laughs> exactly. done anything. And that drives me up the wall. And I actually say pretty much exactly what I just said to the kids. It's like, I know that game. Yes. And I won't tolerate it. it I, I Obviously, I tolerate if you don't understand it. No problem with it. I'm not going to chastise them for not understanding it. But by purposefully avoiding help so that they can move forwards, um, 
that to me is like a punishable offence. <laughs> well, no, I agree. And just to, just to dig a little bit deeper in that, because it's, it's a very common one, but it's as you've as you've pointed out, it's flipping tricky to deal with, right? Because I could I could imagine the phone call home to a parent saying, "Look, I've had to put this child in detention or keep them back for ten minutes." And but the child said to the parent, "Well, it's not fair because I just didn't get it, and he wasn't helping me, and blah blah blah." I mean, every teacher listening to this will have been in that situation where a child. As I said, they don't get something and, and not done work for 10 or 15 minutes. And it's it's very hard to pick out whether it is they genuinely don't understand or whether they are just off task or whatever. So what what, what would you what would you do in that situation? Perhaps perhaps it's the second offense of a, of a child that, that's done this. You, you've wandered around. They literally haven't done anything for 10 minutes. And they say, well, so I, I didn't get it. What are you doing there? Well, if I've come round and they said they don't understand it and for whatever reason, you know, they might have been putting it off or, you know. I'd still sit with them and go yeah, through it, you know, sure. even if I thought genuinely they were lying and they do understand it. Yes. I would sit with them and just work through the basics um, with them, making sure that they're responding and that yes. they're not just going, yeah, 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 yeah. Because if they're just doing that, then the chances are as soon as you come around again, they go, oh, well, I didn't really understand That's it. That's right. And you and you and you're not leaving them knowing for sure that they do understand it. Um, so it's got to be a bit of uh, back and forth with with them actually responding to questions with proper answers rather than just nodding and going, "Oh, now I get it. Show me that you get it before I leave you alone." Yeah. Um, and that really is the crux. You know, if they've convinced you that they do get it, then if if you do get a parent, you can say, "Look, I've I sat down with them. Yeah, I had the yeah. conversation. We worked out the work." It wasn't just me checking and them nodding. They they showed me they could do it, um, and yet still they weren't producing any work afterwards. Got it, got it. Um, but yeah, it is a tricky one. Again, there's plenty of tricky things, aren't there? <laughs> there the all the time. <laughs> correct, correct. And I wonder um, what happens when the when you've kind of got to the end of this phase of the lesson, Ed. I'm I'm quite interested. Do you put the answers up on the board, or do you mark the classwork? What what how do you know what the kids have uh, understood and what they haven't from that phase? Um, a bit of both. So I'll I'll go through some of the answers, and I'll st- I'll stop them at periods and just go right let's let's just go through you know a few of you've been stuck on question three let's go through that one but it's not just me modeling it it's me going right what are your ideas um why do you think yours is wrong um why did you find this one unapproachable compared to the one before what's different about it and really trying to get into the the bottom of why that question was more difficult than others for some kids rather than just going well obviously you just do this um, and, and that's another risk if you say, right, which, if you approach it as which student can do it, show me how you did it. They will just literally write out how they did it yes. or, or speak how they did it. That's not really fixing the problem for the kids who didn't see that when they were on their own. Yes. Um, so, you know, I, I, I might labor the point a little bit sometimes. I'm sure I'm guilty of that. But I would I would go into a bit of depth about why that one was difficult and of what course. we do to overcome it. Um, I've, I've I've kind of forgotten your question now. <laughs> no, 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 no. I was just just wondering what what um yeah like you've answered it perfectly. Just wondered about sharing the answers and and like what do the kids mark yeah, themselves so, or? So I'll give them some answers. We'll go through some answers and then I'll depending on my kind of assessment strategy for the lesson, I'll either purposefully not give them certain answers and those are the things I'll mark. Okay. Um, or um. I'll give them something different as a proper assessment that's the thing that they don't get the answers for. 
Um, sometimes with certain groups like year 11 sometimes I'll just put the answers on the board at the beginning of the exercise very occasionally and just say look I'm not interested in the answer I want to see you working out yes and then see what see what they come up with and I think that's quite reassuring for some kids because they know that they've got it right yes. because it's on the board that is uh, nice. and they know they can't just write the answers because I'm not marking the answers yes. <laughs> I'm marking how they got to the same answer as me that is nice um but that you can, I mean, I don't think you can do that all the time. But it, and you have to know your class, obviously. But um, I think it can work. Oh, I like that. I like that. And um, just is would that be the end of the lesson there? How what, what's the kind of final bit of your lesson look like? Um, well, when I talk to trainees about this, because I've, I've watched so many lessons, I observe <laughs> lessons all the time. I've, you know, whether if I was just working in the school, I'd be observing the department or yes. whatever. So, I've, And one of the things I see all the time, particularly in maths lessons, and maybe that's just because I, I see it more obviously, is that danger of finishing a lesson by going on to something even harder mm. or something different. Yes. Um, and I've been guilty of myself as well. You know, you think, God, they're really going with this. And then at the end, you're reviewing stuff and they've clearly understood everything within the context of the lesson and then you think right we've got to leave <laughs> on a high let's try this a star question yeah, yeah. Seven. and then they're just like no idea no idea what you're talking about and you go well never mind we got so close today well done off you go yeah. and what's actually happening is you've just destroyed all the confidence of yes. every single kid in the class because <laughs> they were really confident that they could handle everything yeah. and then you've thrown in this this spanner and just <laughs> ruined everything um but i think the flip side is quite hard to do you know if they've got if they've done really well in the lesson to spend the last five minutes almost going backwards yes and saying right this these are the basics have we got them yeah this is slightly harder have we got those if you got further i'm happy off you go I think that's quite difficult to do because yes. especially as, a, as, a, as a, a newbie, it kind of looks like they haven't achieved much if you start mm. reviewing the easier stuff at the end. Yes. Um, but my mindset is that I really want them to leave confident. Mm. Um, so I won't necessarily go through the hardest stuff we did in the lesson right at the end. Um, I want to go through stuff that I think almost all of them have got. Well, hopefully all of them. No, that's. I think. I think it's an absolutely crucial point there, and I don't think that's been articulated on the on this podcast. Um, but it's something I've I've thought for a long time that it, le kids leaving your room feeling good about themselves is possibly far more important than anything else, right? Because they're only in math lessons for you know whatever it is four hours a week or whatever. They're out of math lessons for a hell of a lot longer than that. And mm. what what's going through their brain about maths is in those intervening periods is absolutely crucial and like you say if they leave that room thinking i got most of it but i didn't get that last bit so i'm a failure that's damaging whereas if, yeah. if, it, if it means you there's a chance that they don't progress quite as far perhaps as or all of them don't pro progress quite as far as possibly they could have i think that's a price worth paying for them leaving yeah. feeling good about themselves yeah and and a worse scenario is that they did actually understand everything in the lesson and they're further than you expected them to be. <laughs> but because you gave them an even more difficult question, they're suddenly questioning everything yes. they were doing in that lesson. Yes. 
Yeah. So oh, yeah, it's, it's a flipping clear danger, and present that. danger. <laughs> nice, I like it. Nice. Um, I wonder. This is a bit of a world exclusive here. I've got a brand new question. Normally, I churn out the same old nonsense here, but I've just thought of a new one. I'd like to ask. I'd like to ask you. So I'm going to trial this out. Oh, an improvised question. Exactly. These exactly. don't work well for me sometimes. <laughs> I wonder. Is there any kind of so-called conventional wisdom that you hear about what makes a good lesson that you don't agree with? Oh, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't agree with loads of stuff. Give loads some, and loads of stuff. Give me some examples. What, what do you hear? Um, okay, so there seems to be this conventional wisdom at the moment that textbooks are the devil. Yep. And, and that, the, the, there's also an underlying new thing of actually it's, it's about the quality of your textbook. Yes. Shut up. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, even if you've got a really crap textbook, I don't think there's anything wrong with if you've got a bunch of questions you need them to answer and they're pretty much the same as the ones in a textbook, mm. give them the textbook. Yeah. It's fine. You know, it, it's about the it's about the use of the tool. You know, you can make any tool work well for you and you can make a textbook work well for you if you use it appropriately. And for me, appropriately might be we're going to spend 10 minutes on this exercise because it's got the kind of questions I want you to answer in it. Simple as that. Nice. I think I like inappropriate it. use would be, right, you're going to do all the even numbers for the next 30 minutes, and then when a kid finishes, you go, right, oh, challenge for you. You do the odd numbers now. <laughs> <laughs> Which is which, something I think I had a couple of times as yes. a kid. Yeah, me too. Um, but, yeah, there's nothing – you know, save yourself some time. If the, if the stuff there – that you're gonna you're gonna do something similar to it anyway. Just use it and don't sweat about it at all. And you know, let's be honest. If you've got five lessons a day, three or four days a week, and then another three the other day, um, and you just weren't able to plan very well for a particular lesson, it's not that bad if they use no. a textbook once or twice. They're not gonna die. Yeah. They're not gonna <laughs> go backwards. You know, it might not be your best lesson, but we're not at our best five lessons a day yeah five days a week got it i like I'll probably it probably get so. sacked for saying that no 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 I'm, I'm, well, well we'll both go down together because i'm uh, i'm with you on that one so yeah textbooks aren't necessarily the devil i like that a any anything else that you hear that you don't agree with uh, marking in different colored pens <laughs> oh, this sounds good, right? Let's, Having we... all the lesson objectives up right at the beginning every time with right, almost let... some. And I could go on. I'd... Right. Well, oh. let's let's just let's do those two there because we, we could turn into this could be the entire podcast here. So let's let's isolate. But this could be two, me so. on a Monday morning being hauled in with listening to that <laughs> thing. You know. Let's have the um, let's do the mark <laughs> let's do the marking in different colours because I, I have a few few views on this myself. So firstly, uh, what what what? <laughs> I can hear right, here's ask you a question go on, then. who cares yeah. <laughs> who cares what color the marking is in is red aggressive is it really aggressive is it is purple any more placid i mean for god's sake people <laughs> and are we um because we we have the policy at our school and again I'm, I'm more than happy to share this i think i've mentioned it in the past where so our, our procedure is now let me get this right so that the colors have just changed so i best make sure i <laughs> say these in the right order so i think i mark in yeah no this is it so i mark in red 
then give the kids the work back. They then mark oh, they have to comment, comment in green in, or something. Oh, they, they oh, go purple. Geez. They go purple. And then when I get that back in, I remark or recomment in green. So we've got three colours, three colours on the go there. What, right, do you and you know what happens, <laughs> right? You lose your green pen and then you're like, right, I can't actually mark these books today. I've, I've got two hours put aside and there's no yeah. green pens in the department. So it'll yeah. have to wait. And Yeah, it's just and also, nonsense. I know. Do you have it like? Is that a similar? Would you have a similar thing going? And and what would be your solution? Is it just marking? I haven't. And... I haven't got it in. I think. Oh God, I don't even know the, some of the policies because I'm not there enough. <laughs> I know that the kids are supposed to mark their own work in a purple pen. Right. Yeah. I think that's that's one thing. I mean, purple I don't think pen I've sales. got a particularly prescribed pen colour. That's a mouthful <laughs> to mark in. Um, but honestly, it's just. Why? 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 No, just stop doing that. I mean, purple pen sales must have gone through the roof in the last few years, right? Oh, yeah. Who, who, who bought I... them before? Correct, correct. And we are getting in <laughs> stack loads of them. I think we got like like 2,000 arrived the other day. We're absolutely... Like, I wish I'd have bought shares in purple pens. They're absolutely flying. And look, right. I can see that... If no, you, you can't. Look, you can't. Look, well, no, I'm going to try. I'm going to try and <laughs> I can like... see the point. As as I, I used to be an assistant head, I know what the point is. The point is so that everyone who's scrutinising it knows yes. what's what when they're looking yes, at a book. That's it. Ofsted, yeah, yeah. senior leaders, heads of department. That's what it's for. That's got nothing to do with kids getting better at stuff. So why bother? I don't think I'll add anything anything to that. No, you're right. Like, as I was trying to defend it, I don't think I could have even got my words out there. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm with you on that one. So, let's move on, move on from the pens, and let's do the the lesson objectives. Because again, this is this is another one, right? So, yeah, the the conventional wisdom (sighs) that let's. I mean, there's two to this. First is let's get the lesson objectives on the board every time, which I hate. And secondly, yeah. which is the worst, is let's spend the five minute, first five minutes copying down those lessons. Copying them down, yeah. yeah. Copy them down because that makes it go in your head and you learn better <laughs> from copying the words about what I haven't taught you yet. That works really well. <laughs> and it kind of, as well, I, you met, well, there's, there's two things. Firstly, on lesson objectives as a whole, um, I'm opposed to them and often for the reason that I don't want the kids to know sometimes what's what's coming up in the lesson it would it's like a spoiler alert on a film it's like telling you the plot before you've sat down to watch it and yeah. also doesn't destroys any flexibility um you, you know once you've, you've almost committed to what you're going to deliver and the other thing that you you kind of teased there you half mentioned was was the, the concept of all some and most or whatever whatever the kind yeah. of word. Just, just talk to me a little that's, bit about that's, that that's kind of lesson outcomes more isn't it kind yes of, i think uh, well, first of all, I think loads of people don't really aren't invested at all in this objectives and outcomes thing, which I think is wrong because I think there's a lot of weight in it and there's a lot of research to say actually this stuff works. Mm. Um, I'm not convinced at all that you have to have to have that kind of rigorousness of the objectives need to be on the board at the beginning or yes. else, and even worse, people to feed back on on. Uh, you know, on an observation. Well, I can't grade it as a good <laughs> oh, because God. you didn't have the objectives on the top left corner of your board. <laughs> or worse still, you didn't reflect upon the objectives enough throughout the lesson. I mean, yes. for God's sake. Yes. Just, if you want to punch a hole in my lesson, punch a proper hole through it, not something stupid like that. Yeah. Um, and the, the example I give 
it's, it's not math. It's something like science. And I, I, sadly, I don't know anything about science, really. But say you're doing some experiment and your learning objective is to know that when you mix X and Y, you get Z, right? Yes. And then the teacher gets the demonstration at the front and says, <laughs> right, I'm gonna, I've am gonna, i got X here. I've got Y. What do you think is going to happen, kids? Uh, we're going to get Z? Well, yeah, that's exactly what's going to happen. Here we go. And poof, everything out of your le- All the magic out of your lesson's gone. Yes. Um, to play devil's advocate a tiny bit, would there be an argument for lesson objectives at the end of a lesson to write down what we've learned yeah, or think, a reflection or something? As I said, I think I think they are a useful tool, and I think you know, explaining explicitly to kids what the purpose of what they're doing is often very important because they might not pick up on the purpose, and they might be like, "Well, today we learned about um, going back to the linear equations thing. Today we learned." that a linear equation looks like, I don't know, mx plus c, yes. when actually what I, what I really wanted them to focus on was how to plot. Yes. Then, you know, there's that misinterpretation that, yes, they've picked something up, but they're not focusing on the thing that I'm trying to move them forward on. So I'm completely invested in the idea of, of explaining to kids what what the purpose of the lesson is. I just think it's gone completely crazy. <laughs> and been misinterpreted as with everything it gets misinterpreted and boiled down to can we make an acronym out of it can we measure it <laughs> honestly <laughs> um, and I think you- far more important actually is the other one I think the other one's the one that gets abused even more and that's uh, you know measurable outcomes for a lesson you know how do I know that I've done what you've asked me to do yeah. and how do I know whether it's going to be assessed I'm going to get full marks that kind of thing I think is just it's weak, I think. A lot of people don't do it, and a lot of people don't see it as something they need to spend a lot of time on, and I think we really do. All right, mate. So, moving on from that, then, I wonder if... Let's kind of flip this on its head. Could you talk us through perhaps a lesson from your dim and dark past that, that didn't go as planned, and perhaps describe it in as much detail as you feel comfortable, and crucially, why didn't it go well, and, and what did you kind of learn or take from it? Uh, well, you, you say the dark past. I can talk about ones from last year. Ideal, perfect. <laughs> I think I think that's an important message for everyone. You can be teaching for ages and still cock it up. Correct, correct. Um, I taught um, simultaneous equations. I was teaching to a, a pretty decent year 10 group last year. And um, I just did exactly the thing that I tell trainees not to do. And I just felt like a right idiot. So <laughs> I had a couple of examples. I built up their confidence a bit. Um, they, they showed me that they were understanding it. And it's quite a tricky concept. I think oh, it's yeah. more difficult than, than, than people realize in some ways. Um, so I want I, I, I just sort of gently teasing them in, in this idea of just having you know one thing to do to eliminate X or Y. Um, and then when I gave them their independent task, um, I give them them in sort of three tiers of difficulty, so they can choose tier one, tier two, tier three, and they can jump okay. between them. I don't, you know, as long as they, as long as they're trying, they can challenge themselves. Yes. Um, with a bit of input from me. Anyway, so tier two, the first question on it, um, and I wrote the sheet. That's the worst part. <laughs> the first question on it, I don't know exactly what it was, but the answer, if you worked it through, was that x was like minus eight over four. <laughs> no, eight over five, sorry. And um, 
why was I don't know a third or something. <laughs> <laughs> nice, I like and it. And I was just like, yeah, that's not going to work. And I didn't notice at all. And and so as soon as they started, any confidence that was built up was just utterly destroyed yes. with this example that was not behaving in the way they were expecting. It brought in loads of other areas of maths that they weren't necessarily secure with. And whilst it wasn't an absolute ruiner of the lesson, it basically cost me at least 10, 15 minutes to undo that confusion. Yes. And then when they finally get back on task and you've eliminated the confusion, the the confidence is gone. Correct. And, you know, just... And it just amazed me, really, even though... You know, I've done teaching for a long time. Just the the, the power of one question to yeah, undermine correct. your whole lesson um, is frightening. And I tell trainees all the time, you know, whatever you do, produce an answer sheet for the stuff that you're giving them so that you can yes. check whether your questions <laughs> are right. And I give them all this training about how to build up the questions. And, you know, the first ones should be really easy and unpredictable. Yes. And then start bringing in little nuances and, and challenge and all the rest of it. And I didn't do that. Um, but I use it as a case study now, which is quite nice. I actually filmed that lesson. Um, and and I, I, that's, this makes it sound like I did it on purpose. I absolutely didn't. I was filming loads of lessons at the time for training. Um, and I filmed it. And I just I, I hate showing it trainees, but I think the message is pretty important. Oh, absolutely. And I'll tell you what, since you've confessed that, I'll, I'll confess to one from last year as well. Um, a similar line, I had a, a year 11 class who I inherited just at the start of last year and they were really struggling and they, they hadn't got a clue of some of the basics. So I just wanted, uh, we were doing straight line graphs and I just wanted a load of um, really oh no sorry it was sequences I just wanted a load of really um, kind of simple questions where here's a sequence write down the nth term so I'd recently discovered um, Jamie Frost Dr. Frost Maths uh, amazing website and I I grabbed one of his powerpoints on sequences and and what's amazing about his powerpoints he has loads of questions and loads of answers you just click and reveal the answers and and so on but I'd done zero checking of it whatsoever I just banged it up on the board and said and we'd done so I'd done some teaching I said right have a go do as many of those as you can pick out the ones that you like look of the ones you find difficult and so on and it was a similar thing i mean it was question two there it was something like instead like question one was something like two m plus three and then question two was something like minus three sevenths of n minus <laughs> minus pi or something it was an absolute disaster and um, the biggest so that was a mistake but the even bigger mistake i made was not just saying look that is a ridiculous question that's never coming up <laughs> yeah it went through it <laughs> And it was just, by the end of it, I didn't understand sequences, let alone the bloody kids, so absolute disaster. I, you're right, plan your questions and plan your answers. Uh, very, yeah. very sound advice, that, Ed. I like that, I like that. Um, I wonder if we could move on now to, there's there's a few kind of big topics I have to discuss with you, and the first is, is, sure. your, bu- you, the first is your book. Now, this sounds like a, sh- a shameless plug um, that you're going to do here, but it's not not at all. Firstly, because at the time of recording... Oh, no, I think it is. <laughs> firstly, because the, the book isn't out yet, but, but Secondly, I think it's something that um, our listeners are, are, are going to find fascinating. So can you just, just tell me a little bit about it first, please, Ed. Um, well, I've, I've already given you my kind of history of why I didn't like maths at school um, and university and A-level, just all of it. I, I, I ploughed through it. I wasn't, you know, I was good at it, but I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, and when I was, when I really kind of started teaching it properly and started thinking, I actually need to understand this a bit better. Um it used to frustrate me that I didn't know where to go to, to find stuff out. 
Um, and just trivial things that I suppose I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to not know. But actually, when I speak to trainees all the time now, most people don't know. And in fact, a lot of existing teachers don't know either. Yes. Um, just why things work in maths. Um, you know, all these algorithms, all the um, methods that we use, we just kind of take it for granted that they work. And I think the impact of that on kids um, is pretty detrimental, I think. Mm. Um, in that they're never going to be sure of their answer if they don't know what they're doing. And if it's right to a teacher that says they understand it, but actually, you know, maybe they're just really good at following what you're telling them to do. Um, And as teachers, I think, you know, without that knowledge, um, your explanations are probably going to fall short on certain topics. Um, I'll give you an example. I mean, one of the most cited examples really is, is like division of fractions. So say you've got two thirds divided by four fifths. Most people, I think it's, I think it's fair to generalize. I think the vast majority, certainly the things that people that I've seen teach it will flip the second fraction and say, right, if we multiply it, you know, we, we, we get the answer. Yes. Um, and it doesn't go much further than that in terms of, why that works um you know one thing i see sometimes is uh, using a whole number and a fraction and, and talking about that and showing how it, it kind of makes sense with that yes, yeah. and then just kind of saying well if it makes sense with that just assume it's true for for fractions mm. um and i just wasn't satisfied with that at all so i just started looking up stuff and and just doing a lot of googling with the word why in it <laughs> um and just uh, as i say said earlier it just kind of enlightened me about how maths is actually pretty straightforward um if you just have that extra bit of knowledge that isn't always necessarily shared with you um and it that just transformed me and my love of the subject and the way i teach it um certainly to to some students anyway i don't necessarily think going down the um trying to explain why every single thing works route is best for every kid every year group at every point um but i certainly think that it's knowledge that teachers should have um so yeah the book is really just taking nearly every topic in gcse maths and key stage two and three and just saying look this is this this is the basic algorithm this is what's actually going on behind it. Um, and looking at things like the etymology of words in maths, I think that's really interesting and something that, that's really neglected. Uh, you think of things like circles, radius, you know, all these words that are just words we don't use apart from in the context of maths. But actually, when you look at where they come from, um, they have a really clear meaning that makes sense. Um, mostly. Some of them have been mistranslated on the way, but that makes the funny stories as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, just um, give us a couple of practical examples then, if that's right. Can we go back to that dividing fraction? So, w- w- following on from your research, how might that change how you would approach the teaching of dividing fractions? Um, I would... Uh, I'd start talking, first of all, about, about what it means to divide a fraction by a fraction. Uh, and again, that I think often gets mixed up with timesing by a fraction. Um, and then with maybe, it depends on the group. Sometimes I would just jump straight in with the algorithm and then start saying, right, why do you think that works? Yeah. And then looking at it. Um, 
And with other groups, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll do it the other way around, just start building, you know, posit the problem and say, how, how on earth could we sort of solve this kind of thing? Um, uh, some groups I might derive it by looking at, as I said, like a whole number first and a fraction and, and using kind of the things about reciprocals and so on. Um, and some groups I might just demonstrate the meaning um, and then move straight on. And, you know, those groups that I think may not pick up on it or may not actually be that invested in why it works, um, I want to show them because I think by denying them it is is kind of mean. <laughs> um, denying access to, to, you know, making it make sense. Um, but some, you've got to be aware sometimes the explanation is actually more complicated and can confuse kids. Um, so it's not always appropriate to do it with every group at all. Um, I think I, I had a, a middle set year 11 a couple of years ago and I was trying to show them um, why the cosine rule was the cosine rule and they were just like, can we just apply it, please? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I do think part of that is, you know, this is the way I've been taught maths for four years. Can of we course. just keep learning it that way? Um, but uh, more important to me a lot of the time is that stuff makes sense to kids rather than them being able to get the answer. Yeah. Um, and I really do think that that is part of the issue with kids not liking maths. It's nonsensical to them. Oh, it just becomes um, like a million rules that they need to remember that don't make any sense yeah. to them. Absolutely. Yeah, and I've got a trainee at the moment, if anyone's interested, and he's awesome. Uh, and he just, in his interview, he was just like, yeah, I only learnt 10 things in maths, and then I just derived it all in the exam. <laughs> Jesus. Jeez, <laughs> like, that's amazing. Uh, and he is just, he's frighteningly intelligent. With a personality, it's frightening. Nice. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, a rare and, breed. <laughs> I wonder, just uh, before we move on from the book, what, what would you say the most interesting thing you found out was that you didn't know? Oh before God, going loads into it? of things. There's loads of things. There was a lot that I knew that I wanted to just share with people, and then just as you start writing it, you just pick up on loads of other things, um, and some really fascinating things that aren't necessarily crucial as, as subject knowledge, but just make things make sense. Uh, one of the examples. Uh, looking at shapes, so it kind of bugged me that you've got a triangle and it's called a triangle and a quadrilateral's got a slightly different structure to the word and then after that you've got this very kind of structured pentagon, hexagon, yes. all that kind of thing. And I just kind of wondered, well, why are those first two not named in the same way as the other ones? You know, we could have a tetragon and a trigon, that would make yes. more sense. Uh, in fact, you can call them those things, but nobody does. Um, and so I started looking at it and looking at the etymology. And, uh, you know, triangle is a pretty obvious word. It means three angles. Uh, quadrilateral means four sides. So it's the only shape in there that talks about sides. Um, and in fact, I, I thought they all talked about sides, yeah. except for triangle. Um, but it turns out that something like decagon actually means ten angles not 10 sides uh, so the agon bit is about angles and therefore implies the sides um and i thought how how did i not know that <laughs> um and so you can actually have a a, a kind of it's called a degenerate polygon i think called a digon which is basically a straight line um and you'd say you know that's not a shape but it's got two angles it's got an angle on one side a 360 angle on both sides so kind of makes sense 
Um, yeah, and anyway, so triangle and quadrilateral, the reason why they've got these other names is basically that no one gave any second thought to the other shapes for ages. It was like, it's all about triangles, it's all about squares and they had uh, quadrilaterals and they had these special names for them and then after that they started to take more interest in other shapes and develop this system of naming shapes um i'm not entirely convinced that will help you kids get any better at stuff but i think it's no but it's yeah it is and it's 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 a way in right like it's it's something different at the start of a lesson and i think where that's yeah. Where that perhaps is going to be most, well, I don't know, there's there's arguments kind of both ways, but one way I could see that being um, most powerful is where you've got your year 10 or your year 11 class who've been doing the same, essentially the same maths for the last seven or eight yeah. years, and they think, oh, for God's sake, not flipping angles in polygons again. But if you're opening up with a little five-minute story about the history of the words, and all right, it's not going to it's not gonna go down a storm with every single child, but it might just re-engage you know some students and show them that you've actually done a bit of research into this there is actually a history and a story behind this it's not just abstract rules that we're doing for, for no apparent reason whatsoever i think i think that this has got yeah potential to really engage with with certain students and not necessarily just your high achieving kind of nerdy ones who, who are interested in every aspect of maths yeah i think if uh... What I found is if the, the the lower down you start with that kind of teaching, the more effective it is. Yes. So if you if you pick up year seven, um, no matter what their ability for me, I'll always go for trying to teach for understanding first yes. and foremost. Yes. If it falls down and then it falls down again, then obviously, you know, you have to you have to review your tactics sure. or whatever. Um, but I think as a first port of call, try and make it make sense to the kids rather than just plugging an algorithm into their brain. Yes. No, absolutely. And do, when when can we get this book, Ed? Uh, well, it's finished. Um, it's with the publishers now, so I think it comes out in March. So um, be March twenty seventh. March twenty seventeen. March twenty seventeen. Yeah, and it's called Yes, but Why? Question mark. I was tempted to have just the letter Y, but I thought that's just too ridiculous. <laughs> uh, teaching for understanding in maths. So it's aimed at key stage two, key stage three, non-specialists, NQTs, RQT, anyone really. Oh, <laughs> anyone who's willing to buy it. My mum's promised she'll buy a copy, so I'll nice. sell one. I'll be, I'll put me down for one as well. If you can get me a 10% off, I'll have one as well. That's, sounds good. Right, let's uh, move on now to a topic that I know that's close to your heart. We've kind of touched upon it a little bit uh, early on in the interview, and that, that's the whole aspect of questioning. And I know you've yeah. got a particular um, obsession with uh, challenging questions for both students and teachers. I wonder if you could just talk to us a little bit about that, Ed, if that's all right first. Yeah, so uh, on my website that I really don't date enough um i write a lot of um really hard questions for for people to answer yes. and they're really hard for teachers let alone kids um but they don't require any skills beyond gcse so they're ac accessible in in so much as if you can see a way into it you'll be able to solve it if you've got your gcse skill set yes um and I've, i wrote them for but I still write them, and I write them for, for two reasons, really. One, I've found that um, there are kids in schools, there are kids in most schools who can access these things, um, and you wouldn't think that they can, but they can. Um, they might not necessarily solve all of them, and they might need a little bit of help, but they absolutely love 
the fact that you're giving them a question that just looks different and is right. genuinely challenging. Um, and, you know, some kids, a lot of the GCSE is just too easy for them. Yeah. Uh, obviously, we're not talking about all of them, but, you know, some kids, they just they just breeze through a GCSE for the most part. You know, they'll come out with an A or an A star without actually trying too much. And really, I want to kind of hold on to those kids and say, you know what, maths is cool, maths is fun, there is challenge to it. Uh, try this kind of stuff as well. Um, but it's also there for, for people who can't necessarily get the answer. Um, and I, I mentioned about why I write them on, on, on the blog, but really it's not about getting the answer. It's about putting yourself in a space where you can't see a way in yes. and persisting until things start to unlock. And you might not unlock everything, but just that process of having something stick with you for an hour, two hours, a couple of days, rather than a two-minute quick sort of GCSE-style question, um, I think is is important. And I put them up in staff rooms and stuff, like math staff rooms in the schools that I've worked in, and the teachers love them as well, because I think we just forget to do maths as, yes. as teachers. And that sounds ridiculous, because we're doing maths every day. But we're doing maths that's really easy to us Absolutely. every day. We're not, we're not challenging ourselves at all by teaching year seven stuff on basic algebra. You know. And I think we lose sight of the fact that when you're in those moments where you can't quite figure out what to do but you persist and you get through it and you unlock it and you solve it that's a really good feeling and it's 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 almost kind of euphoric i think um to just get there and to, and that that frustration of going god i just can't do this and i keep getting stuck oh wait what if i do oh, this yeah. and, and and then something happens i think we lose that feeling um and the first time I started writing these, the, one of the department I was working in, she came up to me after about two weeks and she said, one of the best things that's happened this year is that I've fallen in love with my subject again. Nice. And I just thought that is really, really quite something that, you know, we, I don't think any of us think about that. But, you know, do we really love maths if you're just doing GCSE level maths all day, yeah. every day? Probably not. Uh, especially if it's stuff that's really, really in your comfort zone. But how do you... I I 100% completely agree with you. And I guess this question I'm going to ask now is is related to both students and teachers. And and that's how do you... How do you engage students to get them to to want to put in that time and to to feel the frustration and and not give up? Because it's not not all te- like I, I know from from my department and various departments that some some teachers just don't like maths and will just just do it just like some kids don't particularly like it, but will just kind of just do it and do the easy stuff and keep going. And if something gets hard, yeah. they'll they'll just give up on it. So, given that we both agree it's very important, and given that you've seen the positive impact it's had on that teacher and no doubt numerous other teachers and students how do we how do we help students and teachers but you know be able to approach these kind of questions without giving up um well with teachers i think first and foremost you just got to keep the conversation about maths yes um not about you know it's very easy to, for me to flippantly say don't whinge and you know i know there's a lot of issues with a lot of schools and so on but try and just focus on on what you're there for and it's and it's it's about passing on a love of a subject and yes. sharing that knowledge and, and so on 
um, you know, department meetings. Why not have five, ten minutes in a meeting where you're just looking at a puzzle and trying to unlock it and just communally trying, trying to just get back into what maths is actually about. Um, in terms of students, um, I think it's just part of a, a wider issue of just trying to nurture a maths environment. Um, which I think is much, much harder for us than, than a lot of other subjects because there's so much more we need to think about. Um, and perhaps there isn't. Perhaps that's just me being naive um, or ignorant, I suppose. Um, so I'd make a massive deal out of um, students sort of putting down other students if they get stuff wrong. Yes. Like, like I completely go over the top, like almost theatrically so. <laughs> um, if, if, if someone says the wrong answer and someone else goes, uh, yes. no, it's not that. Uh, and then you say, what is it? Then they go, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really do go over the top with them because I just can't stand it. And I think it's so, de- it's such a minor thing in a lot of people's eyes. And as a teacher, you think, God, that, if that's all I have to deal with, it's not that, you know, behavior is fine. But I think you just have to absolutely challenge that all the time because until you've got an environment where people are comfortable about making mistakes and asking what they might feel like is a stupid question, I don't think you're going to get very far. Um, with this whole kind of growth mindset thing or yes. the, or perseverance or grit or whatever you want to call it. If your classroom is a kind of classroom where it's the right answer or it's not acceptable, it's not going to work. Yes. Um, but it takes a lot of effort from a teacher to, to nurture that, and it takes a lot of time as well. You can't just flip it around in two days. It's, and, it's, it's months, really, of just... Oh, yeah admitting that you you know you, you yourself make mistakes and maths is more about mistakes than right answers and all these things that they're, they're learning are things that people discovered after years of, of, of you know <laughs> persevering with stuff things suddenly become unlocked and they've made mo- loads of mistakes in the past famous mathematicians have declared all these prime numbers and then been found out to be wrong and we all make mistakes it's just a huge part of maths I don't think we can just ignore and say, well, that's because you don't get it. Go away and get it. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. And I think the, the mistake I made kind of early on in my career is that I was fairly quick to pick up on the fact that it was important that kids made mistakes and mistakes were, you know, celebrated and not dismissed and so on. But my way of combating that was to essentially roll out the same speech, the first maths lesson every year, five first five minutes to say, look, this is a place where we embrace mistakes and all that kind of stuff, but then not actually do anything about it for, for the rest yeah. of the year. And I, I think the only way I've found it to be successful is is to just keep working on it. Like if yeah. I make and if I'm just a daft thing that if I make a mistake, I make a big thing of it. Like I say, look, I've made a mistake, blah blah blah. Um, and, and I'm not saying that I'm amazing at maths or anything, but certainly when you have lower lower achieving students, it's I think it's really a positive thing for them to see the teacher making mistakes and oh yeah, and, and that crucially that they're not ashamed of it. You know that they're they're very open about it and so on. And I've just wondered. If you, I mean, you've, you've already discussed quite a few there, but any other kind of practical tips you have for facilitating this this safe maths environment? Um, well, kind of linked to it, I suppose, but you were talking about sort of how they can attempt, persevere with problems and things. Yes. I think a lot of, I know I'm not quite answering your question, but the, 
there's a lot of people who think you can't teach problem solving mm. um and it is it is a tricky one but i do think the more i think about how i approach problems i do have a kind of general set of skills that i will or strategies i should say that i try out um and i think trying to show kids those kinds of strategies as well uh, is really important um and not just emphasizing that there's one way of doing things um and and what you're trying to develop really is is a bit of resilience and a bit of uh, adaptability into the way students approach maths yeah no you're you're absolutely right and i think the key message is that don't give up on it as well it is so important and it and it, it does just take a long time to to get right no absolutely um i wonder Ed, if we could move to the topic of teacher training because i know obviously this yeah. is something very dear to your heart and, and to mine as well and the first question i want to ask you is are there any kind of common habits that are shared by the successful student teachers that, that you've seen that others perhaps could learn from and this can be within the classroom or outside the classroom however you want to interpret it um i think what it, it just sounds like such a dumb thing to say but <laughs> some of the most successful maths teachers that i've trained are the ones that basically take on board the things that you tell them to do yes um <laughs> And it surprises me that sometimes you, you go and watch a trainee and they're just, I don't think they're aware perhaps that they're just not doing a lot of the things that they've been told, you know, they're, they're told what things not to do and they find themselves doing them. And what, what um, like, could you give us some examples? Uh, like starting a lesson and, and basically diving straight into an equation and saying, this is what you need to solve this kind of problem, off you go. Yes. And then barely deviating from that for, for 50 minutes. Um, and that tends to be one of the first sort of lessons that, that, that teachers teach in maths. Um, but, you know, you, you could tell them a hundred times that that's not the way to do it, but some still decide to do it. And I, I suspect it's partly to do with this. You teach how you were taught kind of yes, yes. theory. Uh, and people fall back on, um, that kind of strategy. Um, the most successful ones are probably the ones that are fairly relaxed and don't take thing don't don't you know respond fairly well to pressure um and just seem to have a way of getting getting on side with the kids um the ones who struggle the most um are often ones who don't see that they're doing things incorrectly um, even if you show them, even if you show them video clips and so on, they just don't quite seem to grasp it. Um, and that's really tricky uh, to deal with. Um, in terms of like planning and things, uh, more successful trainees tend to um, spot what's important about planning and what, what can take a back seat. Um, and don't overemphasize the need to do really explicit planning, um, which I think can really constrict a lesson. Mm. Um, and those with uh, a pretty decent subject knowledge as well, obviously have a bit of an advantage in terms of being able to be adaptable in lessons. Um, and I think that comes with confidence. It comes with um, surrounding knowledge of topics so that if it does go slightly astray, you can you can keep up with it but it, it is it's a tricky business it's a tricky oh, business it is. and it is it is really hard for a lot of trainees and i do sympathize with a lot of them 
um, because it's 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 quite a tough environment at the moment to to, to train to teach in some schools, um, and in some areas just generally it's, it's it's tough. And you know it's it's a very political tool to be just bashed about, isn't it? Education oh, it at is. the moment. Oh, it is, and we have a lot of uh, a lot of trainees listen listen to this podcast. So I just I just wonder, just to pick up on a couple of things uh, you said. Firstly, subject knowledge. Have you noticed any correlation, whether it be positive or negative, between um, a trainee teacher's subject knowledge and their ability to teach, or is it very much dependent on other more important factors? Um, I would say um, those with better subject knowledge cope better. However, I don't see better subject knowledge as necessarily a, a, diff- a, a maths degree or a higher class degree. I don't think it relates to that, to be honest, which sounds really counterintuitive. You know, you'd expect the person who's got a first yes. in maths to have the best subject knowledge. It's not actually always the case. Um, for reasons that I was mentioning before, they might not necessarily understand what's going on with the things that they're solving. Um, they're just really good at solving stuff, um, and and similarly, there's no guarantee that just because you can answer things really really well, you can convey how to do that very well to students. Yes. Um, so I don't think it's as black and white as everyone with a first degree in maths will be the best teachers at all. No, no. I think it's far more complex than that. I, I agree. Um, but yeah, what I think one of the biggest pitfalls is teaching something wrong. Um, and, <laughs> um, and I've seen that a couple of times where people just don't quite understand the concept as well as they thought they did until they're actually up in front of the kids doing it. Yes. Um, and again, you know, that's expected. It's a learning curve. I don't think we can expect perfection from someone just coming into this, especially if they've not not looked at this maths for a long time. And, and you know, you're, you're coming out to see them. First observations are usually October, November. They might have only been looking at this kind of stuff for a few months. Yes. Um, and it, th- there's a hell of a lot of stuff in the new curriculum. Um, and some of it they may not have even seen at all because of all this new stuff that's coming. Yes. So. No, it's a, it's a tricky one. And I think, like, it, I always think your ideal scenario is you want somebody who's got very good subject knowledge, but who's also able to either naturally relate to students understanding why they find something difficult or be willing to put in the time to speak to other teachers or do research or reading about why students struggle because I, I often tell the story of when I my first ever lesson was to a, a year eight class and I was teaching them adding fractions and I thought somebody had set me up um, the kind of mistakes the kids were making I thought literally some of my friends from uni had come down paid each of these kids <laughs> a fiver and just said just wind them up because I, I'd always been in top set maths I'd always loved maths um, I never had a problem with fractions and I could not believe the mistakes the kids were making and it was only through yeah. probably probably not doing research I so it's probably oh, it took two or three years for me to kind of build up a picture of of why kids find certain topics difficult and so on. And I, I think that's one thing I'd certainly encourage um, all trainee teachers to do is just just to speak to other members of the department, yeah. speak to your friends, and just say what have you experienced? Where do kids go wrong on this? Because until you've until you've taught it a few times, there's no way of knowing, right? And I think if you can go in armed with knowledge of where they're likely to go wrong, it just means you've yeah. got a few extra explanations up your sleeve. It just means you can be a bit more careful with your wording of your explanations and so on. Would that be a fair point? Yeah, and I think I think a lot of trainees are quite passive in, in the support that's open to them. And I think that's probably to do with just because they're a guest in the school and they're yes. nervous and whatever it yes. is. But you're so surrounded by experts um use them 
you know um they're in schools the vast majority of the course um and so when we talk about things like the concept map idea you know how do i know what prerequisite skills there are if you're struggling ask the people who teach this stuff they'll know Yes. How do I know what sort of questions they need to come out with? Look at exam papers, but first and foremost, go speak to the teachers. They'll know. Absolutely. Um, And, you know, another thing, target setting, it's such a huge thing. Be be, um, fussy about what targets you get set by people in schools. Mm. So often I'll see a target that says something like, you need to improve your differentiation how how <laughs> tell me how yes. give me an actionable thing to do yes. and tell me what tell me what i need to what it needs to look like in a lesson for you to say yes i've improved that correct correct um and i'm not necessarily blaming the people giving the targets i just don't think that they're aware that how much detail you need for a trainee to actually have something to work with you know oh, your behavior management wasn't that great in that lesson okay what do i need to do improve it yeah but how do i need to improve it what is it that you need to see me doing yes and i mean one of the sticking points all the time is consistency you know be more consistent with the behavior management system well what was it that wasn't consistent Mm, absolutely and just have those discussions and and be be confident to say you know if they give you a target and you don't quite understand it or if you haven't met a target and you thought you were going to just say just talk about it no, no one's going to be cross that you want no. more details. No. If mentors are giving you something that you can't quite interpret properly, it's not because they're trying to deliberately confuse you, um, but you've got to speak up. But I think at the same time, it's, I mean, I don't want to kind of have a go at mentors, subject mentors, because um, I know it's, it, like, to do the job properly, it's a lot of it. It's a lot of extra work to, to kind of work with oh, teachers. And, and, and let me just throw in for balance, a lot of subject mentors are not, wanting to be subject mentors yes it's correct. imposed upon correct. them by by correct itt mentors in schools and i think that's something that needs looking at as well because if you don't if you're not invested in doing it and it's forced upon you and let's be honest schools don't get paid an enormous amount and a lot of it some people don't even see that money oh no no definitely not um <laughs> you can tell someone's going to be listening to in this this money. And more and right. more is being expected of them. You know, Correct. you've got to deliver extra training. You've got to you've got to deliver subject knowledge. Some are being told. You know, it's a big job. It is a big um, job, and, and that's why. And, it's, and it, where do you find the time for it as well? It's it's a tough gig for no, for, right. for mentors as well. I just you know I want to make sure there's a bit of balance in there. I'm not bashing anybody particularly no no me, me neither and and also often i find that if it is imposed upon the teacher to be a subject mentor often they're not overly confident of their own abilities as a teacher mm. them, the, themselves and that's where you get comments like targets as you've spoken like uh, improve your differentiation or a classic that i see so much is improve your pace or my pace the pace was too slow and it, yeah. it's meaningless it's absolutely absolutely meaningless without some actionable um you know targets to to go alongside it but no yeah yeah i think that's great advice ed just to not to just accept those targets just to ask them just to go into a little bit more detail about what yeah well and and again just for balance the trainees have to action the targets as well oh (laughs) yes a suitable target with an action if you're not doing those things you're (laughs) obviously not going to get better (laughs) no of course of course um the other thing i wanted to pick up on uh, related to this teacher training something that when i when i saw you the other week um you mentioned and one of the 
kind of major reasons that we all know why why teachers leave the profession in droves is because of, because of the workload. And and you yeah. mentioned that um, I know you're not a big fan of um, pre-prepared PowerPoint slides and writing reams of lesson plans and so on. But one thing you also spoke to me about, which I thought was a fascinating concept, and I, I can't quite remember the exact name you called it. I, I've written down safe lesson, but it might not be that. It's the, the concept of a lesson that you can plan relatively quickly, that you can have up your sleeve, that it's got a kind of consistent format that means you're not having to plan kind of five or six completely different lessons all singing all dancing every single day i wonder if you yeah, could just I'd, talk talk in a bit of detail about that ed i guess if we're being frank we're talking about the bog standard lesson yes um you know you're, you're very typical what i'm what i try and instill in trainings is that over the course of the year they need to find um their their safe most basic lesson that works so that's not finding your laziest lesson. It's finding the lesson that you have to do the least in to get the most out of that's still an acceptable standard um, that would pass as, say, a good lesson if, if you want to start grading everything. Um, and the chances are, or at least it should be, that those lessons do not require an enormous amount of resources, an enormous amount of planning, an enormous amount of forethought, um, because those are the lessons that you're going to be delivering a few times every week. Because you're not going to have chance to do all these showy singing and dancing things. You're not going to have chance to produce an outstanding resource for every single lesson, for 20 lessons or whatever it is a week. It just You just don't have enough time to do all that. Um, so it's about looking at, you know, if I know what questions I want to ask them and I've got a resource that, that, that ticks most of those boxes, that's my lesson plan pretty much done. As opposed to saying, right, I've got to get the paper out. I've got to talk about which kids are SEND. I've got to talk about how I'm going to differentiate. I've got to think about three different resources for this class because I've got to do this. I'm going to use sort cards because they look nice, but I'm going to have to print those out, which is going to take six weeks. And then they're going to get lost. And then, you know, just cut out all the crap that doesn't actually have a bigger impact and keep all the little things that are easy to plan um, that make your lesson good. No, that's, that's basically that, what it's about <laughs> no, it's, 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 it's very sound advice Ed, and, I, I, and I think yeah I think experienced teachers can, can benefit a lot from that as well and I think that that's that's what I've pretty much what I've been in the last three or four years is is not having a lot of time to do all the, the planning that I, I used to and, and like to do and just having like it's like it is consistency it's just having and just having set things that I do and like you say pl yeah. using any spare time to plan questions as opposed to creating loads of resources Activities. Yeah. Absol absolutely and related to that is something that I'm, I'm fascinated about and I, I when I interviewed um, the PGC leader from from Nottingham we, we spoke spoke about this what's your advice to your trainee teachers about getting other people's lessons whether it be from Tez whether it be from I mentioned kind of Jamie Frost or Joe Morgan's website there's there's never been more stuff out there available to teachers what what's your advice yeah I think that makes it worse in some ways yeah no I agree. I agree like I agree. it's like walking into a library full of maths resources and going I need a worksheet yes yes <laughs> where are you going to start yeah practically infinite things out there now um so two things that I do, I give them my resources first and foremost. I just give them them. I don't, you know, I don't see why we have this kind of, I don't know what it is, but it's like, oh, teacher training is hard, so I'm going to make it harder for you by this, doing this or doing that. Right. 
So I give them the stuff that I've got and I say, look, this is a double-edged sword. One, you've got some good, re- you know, what I consider good resources, but two, I plan those for my classes. And yes, of course. I've got my own system and you're going to have to interpret that for your own classes. So you might find it more difficult, but at least you've got a starting point. Yes. Um, and I also give them a, a copy of the empty folder structure so that they can build their own resources ah, over time. Nice, it's tailored nice. to what they want to do. Nice. Um, and my advice really is don't make stuff from scratch, certainly in your NQT year, um, unless you have to, uh, because there's so much stuff out there. So what I would recommend is they find stuff that looks good and pinch questions from it. Don't use it ex- exclusively. So, you know, I make work, sh- I'm, I, I post quite a lot of worksheets that I've made. If they were going to take one of those, what I'd expect is that they took it and said, actually, question three is too hard or question six doesn't yes. work. But I like questions three, four, five, four, five, six. I'm going to take those ones. I'm going to put those into my thing. Um, and then they're building up their own tailored resource for their class without having to think up all the questions from nothing. Um, that would be my advice. No, that's that's very, very sound advice, I think. Um yeah, it's just I don't know. You don't want them. You don't want teachers creating things from necessarily from scratch. But you don't want them also spending two hours searching for a resource that possibly they, no. they could have created. And the worst is you don't want them just finding a resource and thinking, oh, I'm just going to use that because it's got five stars on Tez or whatever. And yeah, yeah no, I, I completely agree. And, uh, but I mean, sometimes it's unavoidable. So I was teaching um, area of triangles to a bottom set. And I was I was really aware that they just were times in the numbers together and half in it. <laughs> if I was lucky, they were half in it. Um, and I just thought, you know, if I give them three numbers, if I give them all three sides, they're going to get stuck. If I give them all three sides plus the height of a non-right angle triangle, yes. they're going to really struggle. Yes. So I thought what I, what they needed more than anything was just a sheet that where they just had to highlight the things that were important to find okay. the area. Okay, yeah. And there was nothing out there, absolutely no. nothing out there. I'm assuming because either people think that's too basic a skill or possibly more accurately, they'll get through that in five minutes. It's not worth me investing the time making it. Right, yes. Um, but I felt like it wasn't worth investing my time. But because there was nothing there and I, I was absolutely adamant that this was a skill that I needed to home in on specifically and with no distractions of anything else to do in a question but that – then I made one from scratch and yeah. you know yeah it took me I don't know how long it took me I'm pretty quick at these things but it it was something that I had to do to improve the teaching and yeah if if they can't find anything make something and I, I do yes. tend to kind of say look if you've been looking for more than 20 minutes just give yeah, up absolutely you know 20 minutes is a long time and you just start looking you start accepting crap as well you're just like <laughs> yeah, oh, well I've been looking a long time now <laughs> this one's you know got spelling errors but i'm bored now yes absolutely <laughs> the uh, last question i want to ask you uh, about uh, teacher training and 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 this kind of segues nicely into our questions from twitter that have been coming in coming in for for you is from a former podcast guest uh, beth Lilly, and she asks if ed could she, she was my trainee i know i know i know she was um if ed could completely redesign teacher training what would it include yeah i've been sweating about this question <laughs> Only because I'm, I'm, I'm kind of actively invested in yes. <laughs> most of the ways that we train teachers in some form or another. Um, so I thought, what I want to do is just outline um, 
absolute ideals. So yes. forget all the different methods of getting into teacher training. Assuming you're on a course, um, the things that I think would be really, really beneficial to trainees. Uh, first of all, exposure to good practice. So a guarantee that if they go into a school, they're going to see fantastic teaching that, God, this really is ideal, that is in line with what you're telling them outstanding teaching looks like. Okay, yep, yep. Um, and that's tricky in itself because, I mean, you know, everybody's got their own interpretation of what the best sort of teaching styles are and all that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, really good support in schools, really good support in, in non-school-based training if, if that's what they've got. Um, something that I just think is is just so important, and we've just started, thanks to my role, particularly with the university, we're able to do this. Um, and I know that other ways into teacher training uh, have perhaps got more access to this. Use of video, I think, is just hugely important. So being able to film yourself teaching um, and sit down with someone and reflect on that and see what you're doing right, see what you're doing wrong, see what the class are up to, because you don't always see what everyone's up to at each point in a lesson. Um, and then on top of that, use of video of, of watching an expert teach and then watching it back with the expert to talk about the decision, all those micro yes. decisions that they made yes. in the moment, what was going through their mind, why they decided to do this, why did they ignore that, why did they ask that specific question to that kid at that time. Um, I just think that's so useful. Um, but, you know, you consider most most people offering training, just, just having the... Uh, the ability to do that would be would be amazing. It's, it's very difficult to organise, particularly with like because um, there's children involved. Often there's a lot of permissions that yes. need to happen, yes. and so it is a bit of a minefield to do it. But I think it's a really useful thing to do. Um, host teachers as well is, is is often a weak point, you know. So you can you can train up a subject mentor; they're absolutely fantastic, but you can't. There's so many people that are involved within the training of a trainee to, to get everybody singing from the same hymn sheet saying yes. the same thing is just very, very difficult. Um, lots of subject specific input, I think is massively important. Um, you know, we can talk about styles of questioning, but if you're not talking about styles of maths questioning, yeah. yes. it, it loses a lot of its relevance and its impact. Um, I think one of the main things I'd love to see happen is a massive overhaul of the NQT year. Okay. I think that I think that's the weakest, in my mind, that's one of the weakest parts of teacher training is the fact that it seems to kind of end or, or thereabouts. And I know there's there's there's, there's elements of support from yes. from the training providers in NQT year, but really to make it some kind of two year course where the second year is you know they've applied for a job they've got the job or whatever, but there's still a, a bit more of a rigorous training element to the second year than there is in a lot of um, places at the moment. I think that would go a long way. Would you cut, um, the, num would you cut the number of lessons down that an NQT has to teach? Yeah, I think so. I mean, again, we're talking perfect world scenario here where there's no yes. teacher shortages and all the rest <laughs> of it. But yeah, give give maybe give them one day a week where they've still got training or a half day i mean i'm thinking yeah. on my feet here so i'm sure people go oh there's a huge problem with that <laughs> of course there is but i'm you know i, I just think there's a, there's a gap there that should be filled um because it, it, say they are struggling say that say they did really well and then they, they've moved to a school that they weren't expecting to have issues that they have yes 
it would be so much more useful if you could actually just pull them back in and go, right, now that we've got a very specific situation here with what you're dealing with day to day, we'll tailor this training to that. Um, that could be useful. Can I, um, can a lot I, of people talk... Oh, sorry, go oh, go on. On. No, no, go on, uh, go on, Mike. The theory element, I think, is an interesting one. A lot of people say they should ditch the theory side of teaching. Um, I don't think it needs ditching. I just think maybe a little bit more of a refocus. So, to me, without theory, you lose your kind of uh, your Rosenthal, you know, your Watson, William, Willingham, all that kind of thing. All those key thinkers that have offered so much and provided so much analysis of the profession um, to just kind of chance that they're going to stumble across that kind of stuff I think would be a little bit naive um, but what I would like to see is maybe a little bit more tailoring towards developing really critical teachers that come out and say okay in two years time when this new fad comes in I'm going <laughs> to sit here and say right I'm already doing stuff that works how does yes. this benefit me yes um, and just, just that, I think that level of scrutiny has been lacking in it, um, in recent years. Well, certainly in, in, 10 years ago onwards, it's just become this virus in schools where a new, th everyone's constantly finding a new thing <laughs> to focus on. And you've just finished rearranging all your lesson plans to cater for, I don't know, whatever it is. And then this new thing comes in. Oh no, you've got to retailer everything to get. It's just like, can we just have a bit of consistency? Um, and I think the other side, like anecdotal stuff as well, people just ignore anecdotal stuff. So you get all these academics and all these textbooks telling you how to do things. But a lot of the people writing those things aren't doing five days a week, no, <laughs> five no, lessons a day. And, you know, trainees, they're just going to think what they're told is the absolute way of doing stuff. Um, and I was reading a book. I don't want to mention the name of the book. A book about differentiation that's, that's only a year old. And it's just completely unmanageable advice that I would that I've never done. You know, write six tasks for a class and mark them all differently because it's their preferred learning style. And I was like, God, this was written last year. <laughs> um, and 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 academics just ignore things like anecdotal evidence, things that people say but haven't necessarily put rigid research. Behind. Yes, yes. And I think that's really naive as well because when you look at some of the research that's taken place that has informed policies of this, that, and the other, and you scrutinise that research. People have look, looked at classes of, like, two classes and then decided something works for a whole country, and it's like, that's worse than, use, than <laughs> using anecdotal evidence where teachers across the country are saying, well, we do this and it works. Okay, we haven't set up a rigid research thing, but I just think it's, the world's gone a bit mad. No, I I agree, and I wonder as well if um again maybe maybe the, you haven't found this to be the case, but I know when I speak to um NQTs or trainee teachers, the the two biggest reasons that they leave the profession would be uh, workload and behaviour management or be behaviour issues yeah. within the within their schools. So my question yeah. to you is, firstly, is that something that you've experienced, and secondly, w would you have any? advice or would for, for for dealing with for dealing with that or or would there be something that you would bring into the teacher training program that you think would, would better address those two issues in particular um well in terms of behavior tom bennett's just uh he was commissioned to do a report on uh behavior management for for training teachers and i think his recommendations are 
pretty spawn, to be honest. I, I, they make a lot of sense. Um, he talks about having it as a key assessment area. I mean, it, it is assessed anyway, but having it assessed using video and, and yes. um, having trainees experience lots of different types of school and lots of different types of behavior. Um, and whilst obviously we all try and do that, effectively most trainees have two placements, so they're only going to see two schools for the most part. They might get a week or so in another school or something like that. Um Having it delivered by people who are experts in behavior, you know, that sounds so obvious, it's ridiculous. But, you know, a lot of people aren't in a position where they can do that. Um, you know, some some institutions, universities and things, everybody delivering the training has been delivering training for the last few years. They haven't been in front yes, of yes. some little buggers on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> um and I think that just goes so much further, having someone there going, yeah, I know what it's actually like. I'm yes. not talking about what it's textbook like. I know what it's no. actually like. Um, and again, just lots of analysis, lots of videos of, of people teaching and going, right, why did that behavior issue come up there? How could it have been resolved earlier? How could it have been prevented? What were the signs that this was going to go wrong um, that came earlier that you could have possibly extinguished? And... Um, I think that something like that, those kinds of changes, um, whilst some, whilst they might be, they might take a while to implement just in terms of logistics, um, I think they should go a bit further in, in preparing trainees for any kind of student. Um, but I mean, let's be honest, there's the, the other side to that coin is, you know, you can have, uh, if a leadership team doesn't support a behavior management policy in a school, then, you know, it can often be a bit of a fruitless task. You can be amazing at behavior management, but if things aren't followed up or whatever, it soon loses its sting for, for kids. Um, how do you get around that one? I, I, I'm not sure I've got a convincing answer for you. No, no, me, me neither. Um, just on the behavior thing, would like a lot of a lot of training i feel needs to be very much subject specific for maths as i think you've you've touched upon yourself is behavior management does that is that subject specific does it need to be or or do you think generic training's fine for that um i think most of it can be generic um but i do think a bit of input from subject helps so the way that i do it is i do generic sessions like like big chunks like long sessions on behavior and we look at all the different kind of elements of 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 what what constitutes good behavior management but on top of that we do do stuff in subjects so we talk about stuff that's worked stuff that hasn't worked scenarios um you know tactics as well um there's little things i think that we do in maths that we probably don't do in other subjects um maybe we do i don't know but um just giving it that context i think is going to be helpful to trainings yeah, no, perfect. I agree. And just another question from Twitter that, that segues nicely because you, you've touched upon this. And it's from his feet on, on Twitter who says, in light of recent tweets, so this must be a oh, funny yeah. or yeah, funny or sad, <laughs> what are Ed's views on how differentiation should be best done? So firstly, what were you tweeting about and, and what are your views? I was tweeting about that book, I think. <laughs> and are we, are we still reluctant to name the, to name this book? I, well, I don't like naming and shaming right, particularly. Right. Um, I'm sure people could find it if they looked for it. Um, I just think 
first of all, I don't know when differentiation got so detached from formative assessment as a concept. I don't, I don't get that because to me they are so entwined. Um, and second of all, most of the advice that comes out of people's mouths is perfectly sound. First of all, there's nothing wrong with the advice that they're giving. However, if you take every single thing people are telling you to do as gospel, as you must do these things, <laughs> then you're left with about 17 different strategies you're expected to implement on a day-to-day basis, lesson by lesson, each of which adds an hour onto your planning per lesson. It's just utterly ridiculous. <laughs> you know, differentiation by, by resource, you know, create a different resource for each kid. Well, I'm, I'm taking it to its extreme, but I just think that's mad. I, I can understand that in certain classes, you know what, you probably are going to have to create a different resource. If there's a kid yes. in there who, if it's not set, and even set in math, you, have, you obviously have to differentiate, but the extremes are far, far smaller. Um, if I've got a class and I've got a kid in there who can't add up and I've got a kid in there who can do integration, then obviously they're going to need pretty much completely different things to do yes but then i would argue they shouldn't be in the same class together anyway um i do i do agree with mixed ability setting actually i just don't agree with completely mixed ability setting um and you know differentiation by pace you go slower and they get it more well that's kind of obvious isn't it if we taught everything really slowly everyone would be really good at it um and that that the problem with that is do we have that time you know, I get that differentiation isn't about getting everybody to the same point. You know, we're not we're not expected to get every single person to an A star, but it also kind of causes this awful conflict with this growth mindset of everyone can be what they want. They've just got to put their effort in, just keep that effort up. Psychological impact really does help drive students to get better. And then on top of that, almost some, you guys aren't expected to get past this objective, but have a go if you want. Um, <laughs> and you get the week worksheet that doesn't actually have any questions on it that take you past the grade D. You know, there's just so many pitfalls with it. Um, and I'm not saying any of these strategies are particularly poor. I just think as a collection and using them exclusively time and time again without actually thinking through what works best for the class in front of me and what is the most impact I can have without killing myself with workload. <laughs> I think those are the things you need to be thinking about. And, you know, having lessons where you don't differentiate an awful lot, but you mark their work pretty quick and say, actually, you haven't done well here because this is what you need to do. Well, then you're tailoring everybody's lesson for the next lesson. Isn't that yes. like fantastic differentiation? And hold on, isn't that just formative assessment as well? I don't, yeah. I don't know. No, I, th- I think you're right, Ed, and I think it goes back to the point that you've made throughout this throughout this interview that planning your questions is far more important than planning than creating loads of different resources, right? And if you can if you can come up with three or four really good questions that students can approach in different ways and you know, talk to each other and use different methods and get to different points within it, that's going to be far more effective than, as you say, necessarily limiting them with different worksheets and also just 
the, the, the hours you're going to have to put into creating those resources yeah. and then marking them and so on. Now, I, I'm all in favour of, of questions when it comes to trying to get some as effective differentiation as, as is humanly possible. Now, I, I, I agree with that. And I'll tell you, one of the key things I do day to day is just, and I think maths is in a really nice position to do this because questions don't take up much space on a worksheet, <laughs> yes. is just tier the difficult. Make it linear so that the hardest stuff's at the end, the, the easiest stuff's at the middle, but give them that choice to navigate as they go through. Yes. So, you know, they know where the hardest stuff is if they want to have a go at it. They know where the easiest stuff is if they need a bit more support. And then you've obviously got input on top of that. You say, right, you know, Julia, I need you to start probably the middle column because you're kind of getting this. David, I know you think you're brilliant at this, but I want you to do at least one or two questions from the first two columns. Show me that you're secure and then have a yes. go at those really hard ones that yes. grind up. And what I found is that um, the kids who expect to stay on the weakest columns are the ones who push the hardest to get to the foot, the other ones. Yes. Um, and I think that was really eye-opening to me when I first started this strategy, that, you know, how much do we pigeonhole them subconsciously, this whole kind of Pygmalion effect of just assuming that they've got a limit because they're this kind of child, I think. Oh, of course. That's, that's such a danger with differentiation. No, you're, um, you're, abs you're absolutely right. And I, I'll tell you what, Ed, I don't know if uh, you've probably come across this, but my, my current obsession, and in fact, I'm just going to spend this coming weekend mapping it um, to topics on my new worksheet, is the one, the, have you seen the increasingly difficult questions on Mr. Yeah, Taylor's I like those, yeah. Flipping heck. I mean, they're good, and it's pretty much exactly what you're saying, right? You've got worksheets with maybe, I don't know, 15 questions on there, but they literally do get increasingly difficult with each one, up to some pretty extreme levels. And, it, yeah. and it's it's just nice and you do find that it's not the kids who you'd expect to just kind of limit themselves to the the first few that they're they're often the ones who then go and push themselves on and had you pre-prepared a worksheet with their name essentially with their name on it they wouldn't have they wouldn't have had that aspiration to get get a lot further and yeah just simple things like that like you say increasing the difficulty just yeah is 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 absolutely fine for is is just as good as any other differentiation strategy because i haven't seen anything else out there that isn't as fundamentally flawed as anything else it's it's yeah. an impossible thing to get right perfectly absolutely uh, and don't beat yourself up about it as well <laughs> no correct no if you I'm, teach I'm, a lesson and go god i didn't quite differentiate that enough it, it, uh, no one died you're fine <laughs> absolutely <laughs> well a couple more things uh, ed from me then, I, then i'm gonna let you go first is just yeah. a couple of reflections so um I wonder, are there any particular, whether they be books, articles, or blogs, that you'd, you'd recommend math teachers to read? Now, I must emphasize, this is separate to your big three that I'm going to come on to in a minute, but I'm just wondering, you, you've talked a lot about kind of research and, and subject knowledge and reading up on things, and, and I know Mark McCourt often says, everything's been done in, in math. It's all out there. It's all ready to kind of be um, accessed. I wonder, is there anything in particular that you would advise, whether they be trainee teachers or teachers of any age or experience, um, should be looking at or should be reading? Um, yeah, tons of stuff. <laughs> You've just got to kind of balance that with how, how feasible it is that people are going yes. to do it. Um, uh, one of the great things that I've read that really just flags up how important it is that your subject knowledge is just this continuous journey of improving and improving and improving is um, it's a book by, um, uh, what's her name, Ma Lipping, I think. 
um, and she did a study of uh, American teachers versus Chinese teachers. And I know everyone's going to roll their eyes and think, oh, Singapore. <laughs> but, um, and this is a few years ago as well. This is quite a few. I think this was done in 1999 or 2000. And she basically just asks them uh, how they would teach concepts and compares the answers. That That's pretty much the entire premise. And And... I think one or two times she says, right, a student's made this mistake. How would you fix that? And just interviews them like this. And the comparison between them is just so... The gap in, in subject knowledge is, is utterly startling. And it just flags up um, how important it is to understand what's going on. Because if you don't, you're constantly trying to fix people to get them in line with an algorithm rather than yes. fix the underlying problems. Um, and that was a real kind of that was a real inspirational read to me. And it, it's not that long a book, and you actually only need to read the first half, the second half, um, or the kind of analysis of it, and so on. But the first half, the bit about the interviews, I think, was 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 really fascinating. Now, can you just give um, us the name of that one more time, Ed? Yeah, I actually need to look up the name because I can't think of it off the top of my head. So <laughs> it's by someone called Lipping Ma. Um, although I can never remember if it's Ma Lipping, but. Um, and it's called Knowing and Teaching Elementary Mathematics. Got it. And I'll, um, put a link, I'll put a link to that in the in the show notes for people. Thanks. It's it's a brilliant read. Um, and then there's a a lot of stuff that I like reading is just stuff that that's that helps build your subject knowledge. It's but a lot some of it's stuff that you might not be teaching, but other stuff's really good at explaining. But they're quite expensive books, so that's the only thing. Yes. There's there's a great author called. Um, why well, is is a professor called Claudi Alcini? Um, is a Spanish math, mathematics professor, and he does a lot of books with a guy called Roger Nelson. Uh, now, a few a few of the listeners might know Roger Nelson. He made he made some pretty famous books called Proof Without Words, um, which are just picture books that prove things with with, with diagrams rather than with with you know um, tons of algebra. Um, and they've teamed together and they've made some absolutely fantastic books, but they are, they're really expensive, sadly. They're like 40 <laughs> quid or something, but I've got a few of them and I just, I just absolutely love them. So if you've got a library, go get those books, the, any of them. I think they've got about five books together and they're just brilliant. Um, there's another book up by a guy, by called, by a guy called Ed Southall. That's a good one as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's not out yet. But. <laughs> Um, no, that's super, that mate. And just one more, one more reflection question before we get on to your big three. And um, bit we're going a bit deep here for, for the end. What What do you wish you'd known when you first started teaching that you know now? Um. Oh God. How? Oh, actually, yeah. How important relationships are with kids? Yeah. Um, good. I think my my entire first year of teaching, I was I'm going to swear now. I've, I've gone the whole time not swearing. I was an absolute <laughs> bastard to the kids in front of me for my first year. I was just horrible. I was horrible, horrible, horrible. Um, and th- this was the advice. You know, this was the don't smile till Christmas yeah, advice. Course, this was the don't let them show, don't let them see that you've got a soft side kind of thing. Yes. And I was just brutal, you know. I just shouted at kids for for nothing, and I just, you know, they didn't enjoy my lessons at all. I was a terrible teacher. Um, I think I was terrible. I'm pretty sure. Well, someone passed me, so I got them in that bad. Um, 
and it was only after the first year that I started realizing, you know what, when when you talk, when you actually talk to kids uh, and get to know them and realize they're really nice people and that you're not just limited to thinking of them as math students, um, the world opens up to you and and you can start talking to them about other stuff and they start to like you and and they start to have that positive relationship with you. They want to work for you. I think that's the fundamental thing. Um, and when you ask them to do stuff, they'll do it because they want to rather than because out of some kind of fear or whatever. And and I was lucky in a way that I was in a school where they did react in the way that they reacted to me being horrible. Because in most of the schools I've worked in since, uh, if I acted like that, they would just absolutely chew my head off and throw chairs in my head. <laughs> <laughs> Which maybe maybe it should have been like that earlier on, and then I would have learnt my lesson quicker. But yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, that's great advice. And I think, off uh, like when I first started teaching, I used to roll my eyes when the head teacher or whoever would say make sure when you're out on break duty you speak to the kids or if there's an opportunity yeah. to go on like a trip or something like that you know eat with, with them the at lunchtime that's, exactly. that's a really brave move to do but it pays yeah. off dividends just... and just like saying hello to them in the corridor or if you know they've got an interest in something whatever it be football or whatever just trying to engage yeah. with them on that level it makes a world of difference an absolute and particularly those ones that you find difficult you know there's Correct. always something I say always I, I think always there's always something you can find that you like about any child, Correct. even if it's just their humor or if it's just, you know, the, 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 you, often you find they're amazing at something. It's just nothing yes. to do with, with maths, which is fine. That's right. But if you find that thing out and then as they come in, you just say, oh, you know, I remember I had a terrible, a terribly behaved child, and but he loved um, a particular football team. And I just used to, I, I wasn't into that football team at all, but I'd just ask him how the game was each week. Yes. And that, that that had a massive payoff in the end. Just a, such a small, pathetic thing, but it actually it has a big impact. No, you're absolutely right. No, that's I'm, I'm really pleased you brought that up, Ed. That's no superb. That. Well, we uh, co- coming towards the end, so just time for your big three now, Ed. So I wonder what three, whether it be websites, blog posts, or whatever you want, would you like to direct our listeners towards? And I'll put links to these in the show notes. Uh, yeah, I. I confess I don't know what everyone else has suggested. I can remember a few of them, but I'm assuming some of the obvious ones have come up time and time again, like yeah, Resourceaholic and, and, I don't know, Miss, you know Mr. Barton that kind of thing. Mr. Barton, Matthew, I've heard that one's all right. Yeah. <laughs> if you have to get update, wink, wink. That's right, yeah. that's right. <laughs> um, so I'm going to go with ones that maybe people haven't suggested, and they're all foreign. So these are either American or Australian, I think. Um, but they're really, really good. So the first one is one of my favorite websites. It's called openmiddle.com. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's an American site and people are free to upload their own questions. And they basically upload challenging questions on, on a topic by topic basis. So as a teacher, I can go into that site and go to say, I don't know, year 10 algebra. It's arranged by the American system, but it's pretty easy to navigate. Um, and it will give you some really clever ways of asking questions on that topic. And I think that's particularly useful by going back to what we were talking about before. You know, where do you want your questions to go? It's a nice insight into what you can do with a question to make it a bit more thought-provoking. Uh, on a similar vein, aplusclick.com is is pretty much the same sort of thing. Um, lots of challenging questions on there. 
Uh, and then finally, jamestanton.com. If you're not familiar with James Tanton, he's, I know you are, Craig, but he's, he's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And his videos are fantastic. And he's got really, really good, um, I, I forget what he calls them, basically like guides to different topics. And he goes yeah, into loads of detail with fantastic essays. example. Yeah, that's it, curriculum essays. Lovely stuff, um, really thought-provoking, and they do help shape how you teach stuff, which I think is important. Um, so what, those are the three that I would invest in. No, they are gr- absolutely amazing selections they made. And, and James Tanton, I'm, I'm, a, I'm embarrassed to say I'm a recent convert to him. I, I was always aware of his name, but never looked at his stuff. Those curriculum math essays, I'm banging out about three of those a night. Uh, just They're brilliant. To sleep. Some of the best stuff I've ever seen, and I'm... I'm currently yeah. again in the process of linking to all those um, from my website because just such a, a rich interesting starting point to a topic and, and he does like like some of the things you've been talking about he looks at the kind of history of topics and different ways of approaching them and different questions to ask phenomenal absolutely phenomenal stuff no great yeah, selection I think uh, I think Joe Morgan got me into James Tanton he's brilliant Absolutely, it brilliant. Is absolutely superb. Well, Ed, this has been another epic. We've we've hit the two-hour mark. Where listeners will be pleased to. Uh, I think so. it's been and gone the two-hour mark. <laughs> <laughs> so I just a couple of things. First, I just want to thank you for your time for for joining us on the podcast no um, today. And yeah, and just thanks for all the, all the work you do on Twitter and on your blog. It's it's absolutely superb stuff, and I know it's appreciated by me and and a lot of other teachers. So thanks. So uh, much that's very kind. Thank you. So there you have it. There was my interview with Ed Southall. I really hope you enjoyed it and found it as useful as I did. He's a fascinating guy, is Ed. Um, it's tricky to know what to choose for me, math takeaway, because there was just so much good stuff that Ed was talking about. But I, I'm going to go for the, the concept of a safe maths learning environment, because I think it's of fundamental importance. And when I was reflecting on my conversation with Ed, it, it got me thinking about behavior in, in maths lessons. Now, I'm going to be completely open and honest here. Say I was teaching a lesson and a kid swore, then obviously I'll be straight onto it. Or say a kid hit another kid or flipping hit me or chuck something or something explicit like that, I'll be straight on the case and, and dealing out the behavior sanctions or sending them out of the classroom or whatever it would be. Now, Say, for example, I was teaching a lesson and a child gave an answer and another and that answer was wrong and another kid went, ah, rubbish, or like, you know, made some kind of disparaging noise. Am I going to deal with that as seriously as I would do if that child swore or threw something? I, I'll be honest, I, I don't think I am, but if anything, I should be dealing with that more because that comment can do two things. Firstly, it can absolutely destroy the confidence of, of the child who's got the, got the question wrong. And secondly, it has a more wide-ranging impact across the whole class. It creates the culture that being wrong is a bad thing. Being wrong is something that's going to be picked up on by other students. And more worryingly, being wrong is going to be something that I'm going to just let go. That being wrong is is going to be kind of abused or, or had a go at. And me, the teacher, I'm going to just say that's absolutely fine. Whereas if you swear, I'm going to pick up on it and that's bad. And that's the wrong message. Because you can make the argument that swearing or throwing something is nowhere near as damaging in the long term as creating this this environment in the class where being wrong is an issue. And being wrong is something that you're going to be made fun of. So... 
I'm saying this more as a kind of reminder to myself that I need to be on to this more. And it's all well and good me saying, look, kids, it's fine to make mistakes in the class. It's, we're going to encourage mistakes. We learn far more when people get things wrong than when people get things right. That's all well and good saying that. But if you don't follow it through with, with strict behavior policies and consistency of behavior that helps facilitate that safe, positive learning environment, then you're absolutely wasting your time. So as I say, that's <laughs> that's kind of a mini rant at myself just to remind myself to to do that more in the future. Anyway, Ed has got an absolutely cracking little maths problem for you here. It's flipping hard. So um, I'm going to hand back to Ed. What's the largest semicircle you can inscribe into a square? So there we have it. Another episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast is well and truly under our belts. I really hope you enjoyed that one. Um, as ever, just the usual plea, if you do enjoy these podcasts, if you wouldn't mind going to iTunes and just giving us a decent rating, it really would be much appreciated. I've got some absolutely unbelievable guests lined up for the next few episodes. I'm dead, dead, dead excited. But for now, all that remains for me to do is to once again thank Ed Southall for being an absolutely wonderful guest. Uh, to thank podcastthemes.com for providing the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show and to thank you my loyal listeners for, for sticking with this podcast and listening uh, listening to it uh, that's why I do it, I do it because people seem to enjoy it um, and that just means the world to me, so as I say if you wouldn't mind giving us a review I'd much appreciate it or just a little shout out on Twitter or something like that and I shall return with some absolutely top draw guests next time, take care of yourselves and bye for now bye for now